Hey hikers, welcome to the Thruer Podcast, where we talk to new and experienced long distance or through hikers about their adventures on and off trail. I'm your host, Cheer. In this episode, we are featuring PCT, JMT, and CDT hiker and wilderness skills instructor, Ned Tibbetts. And the audio was actually recorded during our steep snow travel Zoom meetup with Ned. Ned will be the first one to tell you that his word is not gospel. However, he's had immense experience hiking, teaching, and conducting rescue efforts in the Sierra. And I'll go more into detail about his credentials during the meetup. What Ned is teaching here is very valuable, and this is yet another resource for you to prepare as a hiker. At the end of the day, research current conditions, learn all you can from different sources, and make the decision that's right for you when the time comes. One of Ned's endeavors is called Mountain Education, which is a nonprofit that promotes wilderness safety. If you've gained value out of this session, consider donating to Think Ned for his time. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to do that. At times during the Zoom meetup, Ned talks about something he's showing on screen, and there's also a 20-minute video he shows later on. This still has value if you're listening because he's pretty descriptive, but be on the lookout for the YouTube video on our all-new YouTube channel. The link will be in the show notes, and you can also get updates if you sign up for our mailing list, which you can do at our website. It's www.threwer.com. That's www.thru-r.com. Also notice that I kept the audio pretty raw just so it would seem like you yourself as the listener are sitting in the Zoom meeting with us. All right, now let's get to it. Enjoy this informative session with Ned Tibbetts. Let's get started. Okay, guys, let me just introduce myself and then I'll introduce Ned. So my name is Carol Coyne. My trail name is Cheer. Hey, everybody. Um, I'm the founder of Thruer, and we are a long distance hiking community that provides community um, education and resources for new and experienced hikers. So um, thank you all for being here. Let me introduce Ned. So um, Ned has so many credentials um, and experience in specifically the Sierra range. Um, We are going to be going over northbound hikes specifically on the PCT. And um, also I think Ned is going to mention um, southbound hikes. I'm going to the Cascades too, right, Ned? Um, So great for PCT hikers. If you're a JMT hiker, this is great too, especially if you're maybe planning on going earlier season. Um, Or this is also great for anybody who um, plans to do any snow travel in the future. So um, that's why this is important. And Ned, again, has so much experience in this realm. So he is a wilderness skills instructor. Um, He is a United States Forest Service wilderness ranger. Um, Sorry, I'm looking at my notes because there's so many credentials. (laughs) Um, He's a Knowles Wilderness EMT, search and rescue instructor. He threw hiked the PCT um, and the JMT many times and he also has hiked um, a big portion of the Continental Divide Trail. So without further ado, Ned, take it away. In my life. Everybody can hear me? I see heads nodding, thumbs up, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> it's been said by my students that my style of teaching is called spew. I just simply go. And, and kind of like you wind me up and I just take off like that old 
that old toy, you know. <clears throat> but um, I'll try and keep a, uh, a vein of thought long enough to kill it and move on. If I do stumble, I'm going to rely upon you guys. Hey, class, <laughs> um, let me know where I left off in case I go off on a tangent, because I will. I'll think of things that you need to know. And um, I'll start talking about them and forget where, where I was really headed. So uh, you, you guys are going to need to pay attention. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. Um, I want to show a 20-minute video that I filmed in 2014. So six, oh no, seven, eight, seven years ago. Yeah, it's not 22 yet. Um, at the base of Forrester, where I happen to have had a decent camera and um, good snow in which to pretty much cover everything you're going to need to know uh, for early season um, high Sierra uh, travel. Now, I'll show that. I, want, I really kind of need to preface it a little bit because I watched it again the other night and I hadn't seen it since I made it. Um, and nothing's polished. None of these things are, you know, um, I started Mountain Education as a wilderness school, nonprofit, public charity, et cetera, uh, back in 1982. And um, it's always been a out of the back pocket kind of affair. You know, uh, it never really made any money, but the whole idea and what Carol's doing too, and this has been fantastic to be able to collaborate with Carol, but the idea is to try and give you guys as much information about what you're walking into, the realities of the trail, I like to call it. <clears throat> So that you don't go into it going like, oh, what the hell is that in front of me? You know, it's like, how do I deal with this stuff? You need to, if you want to uh, survive or uh, overcome an obstacle, you need to know all you can about it. And there are two or three major safety obstacles on a Pacific Crest Trail through hike that seriously need to be talked about. Um, and then whether you decide to uh, engage and test it or, or um, apply anything you learned uh, to um, get you through it is up to you. Uh, I will be sharing with you a whole ton of different uh, skills as well as knowledge base to help you understand what you're about to walk into and then how to deal with it. Um, since 82, I've been teaching uh, these skills, creek crossing skills, all anything to do with through hiking uh, to through hikers in the high Sierra, usually along the Pacific Crest Trail. And I'll go in anytime from, uh, you know, January to May uh, on weekends to teach students. And then from May, May and June, those months, I'll be in the high country uh, from Kennedy Meadows South to uh, Kearsarge, sometimes Bishop um, Passes. So what you're going to see in that video was taken on a very drought year, middle of May, uh, but the snow conditions, what, what we're going to talk about has to do with the surface of the snow. So I don't care if you're on an inch on, on Desert Divide, San Jacinto, Baden-Powell, whatever, or you're on 20 feet, your contact is with the surface of the snow. So um, there are varying conditions. Um, I suppose we need to get into some of that as well because you guys really, you know, you may not have put it all together. So unless there are some really uh, introductory questions, I don't know, Carol, no. if you want to do anything at first, uh, hands up maybe, catch my eye, whatever, I'm going to dive in. I don't have any questions right now. And just there's somebody, can everybody make sure they're on mute? 
I, I'm looking and I see, it looks like I I'm something. on mute, but I hear something. So just make sure you guys are on mute. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I don't have any questions right now. So maybe just get started and um, I'll interject. Okay. <clears throat> okay, there are some basics that you need to understand. Um, one is the difference between powder snow and consolidated snow. Powder snow is the stuff that falls out of the sky, piles up loosely on the ground. You'll see it during the storm and immediately after a storm, uh, slides down the roof of your tent, piles up along the side of your tent, pushes in on your tent, flattens your tent, <laughs> all that kind of good stuff. Um, versus uh, consolidated snow, which is snow that has um, warmed, usually all it takes is just its own weight. So within a couple of days, usually a, yeah, usually a couple of days, after a powder snow event, so the snow falls out of the sky, <clears throat> piles up all around you. You've got, say, let's talk about a foot or more of snow. Um, give it a day or two before you start walking around, especially in the high country because of the concern for avalanches. Whenever a foot of snow or more falls on an old snow surface at angle, so I think it, the pitch is uh, somewhere around, I don't know, 25 degrees, 30 degrees and up, uh, that's the avalanche. That's the zone where most avalanches happen. A lot of avalanches um, happen spontaneously, especially on steeper terrain than that, because that's where you're going is steeper terrain. Um, but in that zone of say 25 to 35 degrees, which it's like, you're looking at me going like, well, what does that look like? That's just a number to me. Imagine this, <clears throat> you're on, you're walking across a slope on a hillside and it suddenly occurs to you that if there were snow on the ground, God, it'd be a great hill for, for sliding, for uh, 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 tubing, tobogganing, um, sledding. If you see that kind of an angle, that's the angle I'm most concerned about. So stay off of those pitches. If a foot or more of snow has fallen um, in the last day, because you, your own tracks, your own footfalls can trigger a crack in the snow, which will be the head wall for the, uh, for the avalanche and you just get swept off your feet. So the rule of thumb is stay in your tent for a day or so, let the powder snow settle, pack down all by itself, a little solar radiation, a little warmer temperatures, <clears throat> and it'll do it all by itself. And then it refreezes at night, Hey, nice and convenient so that you can walk on it in the morning. Otherwise, powder snow, hey, everybody knows, you wallow through it, you kick through it. And that's the problem with if your northbound PCT hike runs late, say past mid-September, um, you run into the early season snowstorms that, that, that come anytime thereafter in the North Cascades, and they can be heavy storms. They can drop, we had a 12-footer not too many years back, stranded a whole lot of PCT hikers, but they usually come in at about one to three feet, sort of like the Sierra as well. Um, but you don't want to run late because you're going to end up in a powder event. And in winter, really cold winter, you don't have a lot of rapid consolidation. So if you're hoping, okay, yeah, Ned said I wait a day or so and everything's going to pack down and I can walk on the surface like it's concrete, uh, that when it's really, really cold all the time, like it may be in the North Cascades, you may be in powder snow for weeks. So it just depends upon when the sun comes out, what the ambient temperatures to do, or to do, not to do, 
what they do. Um, and wind, um, wind direction. But anyway, I, I, I don't think this is the forum really for talking um, about a lot of that. If there's questions about that, I'll dive into a weather prediction, what to do when uh, based on wind directions and, and speeds and stuff and, and what pill, snow pillows are and um, uh, wind slabs and, and other stuff that actually are a hazard. But that's, that those are secondary hazards and I'm probably going to avoid them today. So I want to get into actually walking on snow and how to uh, keep yourself safe. So um, the difference between powder and consolidated snow, we just knocked that one out of the park. Um, any questions on that? Then I'm gonna move into the next thing. See this, I'm cheating because this gives me a chance to <laughs> have some coffee. If there's no comments, I'm moving on. Okay, next thing has to do with time of year. So that was snow surface powder versus consolidated. If you enter the Sierra before May, you're in the a really kind of active winter storm cycle still, and you're, you're more than likely going to have uh, snowstorms that drop a foot or three of snow. Not good because the snow surfaces that are around you, especially if you're in canyons, which you largely are in the Sierra, um, those sidewalls of those canyons are easily 45 degrees. Like, for example, um, there's, a, there's a something called a tool called a, um, a slope meter. And in avalanche studies and stuff like that, because I was a ski patrolman for five years at Heavenly and, and in Tahoe, um, we use them often to measure slope angles and see if uh, that any particular slope that the public might encounter um, is uh, unstable. So I took a slope meter up to the base of Forrester once and had a little fun because the bottom is about 20 degree pitch, has about a 20 degree pitch. And as you work your way up, um, sort of the right side of, because it's all white, right? Because you're in there in May and June, it's all snow. So you cut your own switchbacks up the snow on the right-hand side of the notch in the, in the pass where the, where the actual pass is. And, as you go up, it goes from about 20 degrees to about 30 degrees. And then if you're lucky, you encounter switchbacks. Now the switchbacks are gonna be full of snow. What that means is that when, when snow, when trail gets, when trail on steep slopes, trail going across, traversing across a steep slope becomes full of snow. It, uh, the snow assumes the angle of the slope. So you're not gonna have a nice little flat pile of snow on, on the switchback when the hillside is like this the snow on the switchback is going to be like this. So highly it's going to be highly likely that if you see any rock that indicates where the trail is as it switchbacks across the face, you'll be standing on the very edge of the trail on the precarious large rocks that we typically line trails with on the downhill side of the, of the trail bed. Um, I said precarious because a lot of those rocks, if you walk on them, they move. And on the steep passes of uh, even Pincho, uh, Glen, Mather, Forrester, and some creeks that you're going to go up and down. Um, basically, I would I would stay away from the summer switchbacks because they're all buried, and they're going to be crazy for you to be be in that vicinity. And that is a good segue to another point, which is if everything is covered in snow. Why the hell are you trying to follow the trail? 
For example, imagine, wow, where would be a good place that everybody knows? Um, well, heck, um, say, you're, say you're in the vicinity of Crabtree Meadows. And since I did a lot of, lot of training in this area from Cottonwood to, to Kearsarge, I mean, it's, it's good with me, but you can imagine the fact that in the area of Crabtree, you've got creeks that run east-west, right? Coming down off of Whitney, flowing down to the west, to the current. So you're going in and out of creeks all day. Some of those creeks are, have real steep descents. So whenever you see switchbacks on your summer map, and you know, cause you're looking at your map for the route for, for the day, if you're having breakfast in your tent, whatever, maybe dinner the night before you're looking ahead. If you see switchbacks, that's gonna be a really steep slope. You don't really want to go across steep slopes one, because of avalanche issues, should there have been a recent snowfall. And two, um, unless there's a boot track that's flat, boot track meaning uh, a footprints that people have stomped into the snow to make a, a trail across the uh, steep traverse. Uh, that's a boot track. Um, you don't wanna be there because you're gonna have to rely upon the edges of your shoes you bite into the snow so that you don't simply fall on your tail and, and crash into the tree below you. So look at your map and note where the trail is going in a gross way. You're coming along a, a, a ridge, not a ridge, a, 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 um, you're going along a yeah ridge, whatever, uh, between two creeks, say between Crab, you know, Whitney Creek and Wallace Creek. And suddenly you get to this place where uh, it's an overlook and you're looking down into Wallace and you check your map and make sure that you're, you're near where the trail is because you know, you can't see it. It's under eight feet of snow. And, um, and you think, okay, the trail goes to the right and goes down some switchbacks. But you see a creek, you've been falling. Maybe there's a creek um, because you're on a ridge, you're not on a creek right at the moment, but you notice nearby you is a creek descending down into Wallace, a little tributary. Well, the, the summer trail, and I'm getting into this just to give you an example of a, the point that the summer trail is designed for horses and people in summer conditions. It's not intended to be um, the safest route when everything's covered in snow. Whereas a creek, which has a more um, a gentle descent, might be safer to follow. So you want to look at those situations when you get there. Much like we talked about last week, when we were talking about coming up to a creekside and doing the stop STOP routine. Stop, think, observe, plan. When you get to an overlook and you see a big descent in front of you, you want to assess what is the safest way down, not based on the trail, but based on the surface snow angles around you. Snow changes the topography in a nice way, like in May, and we'll get into the timing again in a minute. It, it, it smooths everything off into nice ramps, ups and downs and, and flats and things so that uh, it becomes a much safer surface uh, when frozen and consolidated for you to simply walk on and just bang on down uh, the hillside down to the creek. Um, and so if you see on your map that your contour intervals between contour lines are further apart than where the trail goes, across the switchbacks, go that way. So look for places where the contour lines are further apart that are near you, and you can just go down that ramp down to the creek. And if it looks like in the process of going down that ramp, you run into a waterfall. So I'm just painting a, 
you know, a picture that could happen. Look at your map again. And when I say map, I'm talking about a, a colored topographic map, whether it's on a, a electronic screen or a paper. I prefer paper because it gives you a bigger view of where you're going because you're going to be doing micro navigation, which is how do I get around the tree to and macro navigation, meaning where's the pass and how do I get there? Which creek do I take up to the pass? Uh, and that's a big issue that we're going to have to get to. Carol, remind me that I got to talk a lot about navigation. Um, right now, we're just setting down some basics. So, um, one second. Um, we're going to be going over over snow navigation next weekend too, right? Well, that's going to be the detail. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to go kind of more broad this time. Yes. Okay, I'll yeah. write that down so we don't forget. Well, if you don't forget, I'll forget. Okay. Okay. Um, so we've talked about snow types, snow surfaces. Um, we've talked about angles and some of the hazards and how you deal with some of those hazards. If it's really steep, hard snow and you're traversing, you have to use the edge of your shoe. Hmm, should we get into this? No, let's stay on, let's stay on uh, concepts. Okay, let's go to time. Don't want to be in the Sierra before May because of the amount of snow that's still falling out of the sky. So some of the big storms are still happening up to about Easter. <clears throat> so it's not wise to be in the Sierra on those steep 45 degree angle slopes that are on both sides of you as you go up or down the canyon um, and avalanche frequently. So stay out of the Sierra before May. Once May hits, um, because of the, you know, uh, the amount of solaration now that's, that's going to hit or will be hitting the Sierra prior to the thaw. So uh, we need to mention that there is a time when the Sierra suddenly starts to thaw out. That thaw can happen anytime um, around the last week of May to the 1st of June. For a general benchmark, I just say, count on it by the 1st of June. The thaw is important, very important for for you for the long distance hikers and those who are going in early season because it changes the entire characteristic of the uh, density and surface of the snow that you've been enjoying walking on up till this up to that point you know uh, as long as the nights are below freezing so keep an eye on your nighttime temperatures as you cruise through this year in may as you begin to see the nighttime temps start to warm up and they'll go from 20, yeah, in the 20s, maybe the teens in early May up to say 28, 32 toward the middle of May. This is overnight temperatures. Daytime temperatures can be in the 40s, uh, 30s in early May. So plenty cold. Sun can be out, you can be plenty cold, just like downhill skiing um, during the winter months. When the temperature stops um, dipping below 32, so those, that's your, you, you know, obviously the temperature which water freezes, um, and stays above 32, then the thaw is on. Now what you'll see is um, in the week prior, as the overnight temps are still below freezing, but rise above freezing fairly early in the morning, the snow surface starts to soften. It's not the hard, frozen, wonderful sidewalk that, that you can enjoy in early May. Now you've got, you've got 
two to two to four inches maybe of soft stuff on the surface. What's underneath that will be a frozen layer. So your your freeze thaw layer or your ice layer um, is under the the soft surface stuff that gets, it's melting because of the sun. That's an important point to to make and to know because uh, you think, all right, I'm just going to um, I'm just going to wear my boots in the snow and it's going to soften and I'm going to have a lot of bite because um, you know the bottom. I wonder if I should bring this up right now, but the bottom of your sh your shoe should have really deep lugs to grab the, the the soft snow. And you think, okay, that's going to be fine, but as you compress the soft snow on the surface, what are you standing on? You're standing on an ice layer underneath. So if that ice layer goes from flat to tilted, then you're slipping. And you think, okay, why can't I, why aren't my shoes getting enough of a bite in the soft snow? <clears throat> it's because that layer is there, so count on it. And then as the day progresses, even that soft ice layer can get softer, not soft ice layer, hard ice layer can get soft. And then you'll pop through that and you begin to start postoling. Realize another principle, snowpack, the depth of the snow is comprised of layers based on how much snow fell per storm. So during the winter, if you hear the news report saying, oh my God, the Sierra got a five foot dump, you know, put that in the back of your mind because that five foot layer It'll consolidate down to maybe three, but that's gonna be present in the snowpack beneath your feet. So if you should pop through the freeze thaw layer that created ice on the surface of that now three foot dump, you pop through that, you're gonna be going into soft snow that's three feet further down before you hit another layer. So just keep in mind that when you do suddenly pop through, or post tool, how far you go will be an indicator of the uh, the last snowstorm or whatever that the amount of snow fell right in that. That makes a difference because um, sometimes you can get away with shallow post holes and you can keep on cruising. But if you're popping through in some deep stuff, like you'll find on the north side of ridges, because which way does the wind blow in a storm? It comes out of the south and blows to the north. Low pressure systems cycle counterclockwise. So the wind comes out of the south when it's raining or snowing, and that's true for wherever your house is as well, as long as you're in the northern hemisphere. So what does the snow do? Yeah, snow will land on the south side of the hill. The wind will blow it up and over the, the, over the mountain, and it piles up or pillows on the north side. So your north side of everything will have deeper snowpack. I didn't plan on getting into this, but it's really important to know because if you're in the Sierra in June um, and you see the south sides of, say, Forrester is completely dry. You think, yeah, I got it made. I'm going to get all the way to Kearsarge and have hamburgers and pizza and beer. and everything. I'll be able to get out faster because there's no snow. And then you get up the top of Forrester and you see nothing but white. That's because the wind drove all the snow in the winter not all the snow, obviously, but a lot of the snow up and over the ridge, Forster and most of the passes in the Sierra that the PCT JMT goes over are east-west ridges. So therefore there's a southern face that you go up if you're northbound and a northern face that you go down uh, on the other side. Just a quick aside, if I may, if you are northbound on the JMT and it's say, 
uh, mid-June, late June, after a light winter, and right now we're in a light winter with, what is it, 60% average snowpack across the Sierra with variations between north and south. You will have dry northern climbs up the passes, making very easy. Follow the trail, no big deal. You get up the top, you see nothing but white, don't panic, because now you can sit down and glissade and have a, <laughs> hopefully, wild ass ride, having fun like a roller coaster all the way down where you can scream and holler and, 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 and have everybody film you and, and it's just a lot of fun. And you can cover thousands of feet in one roller coaster ride and it's a kick in the ass. So anyway, that's what you want. Now reverse that, say you're southbound. You may, if it's late June, your snow is going to be post-holy soft wallowing mashed potatoes by mid-morning. Most people don't camp like within the mile or so. Remember, one mile an hour over snow, that's your speed. You got to be safe. You're not pushing off your toes like you're on dry ground. You can't go fast. You have to walk like a duck, a little flat-footed. So you're limited to one mile an hour over snow. So even if you, you'd have to, it's like you're southbound, you'd have to camp as close to the passes as you can so that you can get up and over the pass to the dry trail on the south side um, as early as possible because wallowing through post-holy snow on an ascent and a climb up to the pass is a major fatiguing, exhausting affair. Um, especially if you've got powder, but you probably won't, but you never know. Uh, let me step aside on that one. Carol, you got something you're trying to say? Yeah. Um, so on that note of um, a Sobo hike going through the Cascades, somebody asked what, maybe we can go more into detail. I know you mentioned it, but um, can we go more into detail about like, okay, is June in Washington equivalent to May in the Sierra? Because I know you went over like nighttime temps of during the Sierra thaw, but how how is that in the Cascades? Okay. All right, perfect, good question. Uh, let's talk about southbound PCT. The, the benchmark dates per snow condition, and yeah, you could probably say June in Washington is like May in the Sierra. Um, the Northern Cascades have a uh, higher humidity, it's a greater maritime um, atmosphere than in the Sierra. The Sierra is very dry. North Cascades are pretty wet. That's why they refer to their snow as cement. Um, cascade cement, they call it. Um, so I would think, and I've been up there, I've taught up there in, in, in June. Uh, it was soft, but the snow quality and consistency was very typical to late May in the Sierra. Uh, soft, postoli frozen layers down deep, um, but it's, it's, a, it's a more of a maritime environment. So your humidity level is gonna be higher, therefore the snow could be softer um, in June. Um, whereas in the Sierra in May, it's much drier. Uh, it's actually nicer, but you know, the locals up there will tell you. So if you're starting um, southbound and you're in the town of Mazama, go down to the um, Goat's Beard, uh, store in Mazama and ask the locals who are up on the hills and stuff every weekend with snowshoes or skis and they'll tell you what's going on with the snowpack up there because you're walking on snow you're not walking on dirt you've got to know what's going on in that snowpack as far as the layers and and the the 
instability of one layer to stick to another below it. Let's see, that's how avalanches happen. Um, a surface layer won't stick to the layer below it. They don't, they don't play well in the sandbox. And so, um, you know, they don't get along. So one slides away from the other. And so you need to know, talk to the locals when you get up there and find out what the snowpack's doing or put it in a question on Facebook or something like that. And maybe one of the North Cascades folks, maybe we've got somebody in the group um, this morning um, who could speak to that. But uh, let me just point out that the benchmark dates for starting southbound, if it's a light, if you've got a light winter, um, you can start mid-June. You know, you're still going to be on snow. You still may have two, three feet of snow, uh, but that's that's the way it is. You know, uh, you can wait, of course, and some more snow will melt off. But remember how, as we talked about last um, uh, last Saturday, snow, when it melts off, it just simply goes up in altitude. So where you had an inch of snow at 9,000 feet, I'm talking Sierras again, um, in a month, you might have that same inch of snow up at, up at 10,000 or 11,000 feet. So you're still going to run into snow, northbound, southbound. I don't, I don't care. Um, it's just where it's going to be and how many miles of it you have going over the passes. But that's another thing. So if you have a normal winter in the North Cascades, which way I believe they are over there. What is it? 130% or something like that now uh, with more storms coming in. Um, you don't want to start much before July 4th. That's the locals benchmark date after a normal winter. Um, if you have a heavy winter, you don't want to start much before August 1st. Um, like I said, you can wait longer and there'll be less snow, but you're going to be dealing with it Anyway, the, the, the thing you want to know is, is it powder or is it consolidated? If it's powder, I don't want to be there. If it's consolidated, I'm walking on top of it as long as it refreezes. So the questions at Mazama's Goat's Beard store, how deep is the snow? Which is irrelevant because you're going to be walking on it anyway, but it's always good to know. Um, is, it, is it consolidated? Is it powder? Um, is it refreezing at night? If it's not refreezing at night, you're in the thaw period in the North Cascades, and you're going to probably be post tolling after 10 in the morning. It's same sort of issue. So you want to do your hiking um, at, uh, at night, um, but not before you can see. This is another important point to try and, try and lay out, if I may. If you, you're, you're going to be eager to not post toll. So you're going to want to get up at three. You're going to want to be on the trail at four. There's still nothing but stars. If you're in the Sierra above Timberline, the moonlight alone will show you everything. It's, it's really incredible, especially at the full moon. If it's a new moon, you're probably going to have a headlamp. The problem with that, it's almost a false sense of security. So hear me out. The, the headlamp beam only shows so, so great a distance in, ahead. So your macro navigation, where the hell is the pass? I can't see it. Am I in the right creek drainage? Am I going around the tree and should I be going up the slope or down the slope? You can't see far enough to navigate. And secondly, for your micro nav, like uh, is that hump in the snow, uh, is snow covering a rock, snow covering a tree? Because remember, there's a problem there. There's a hazard there in the sense that the airspace around warmer objects, see solar radiation will go right through the snowpack and hit the rock. 
And the solar radiation will warm up that rock and create an air pocket all the way around the rock. The snow will melt away from the rock, around uh, from the tree, uh, from the tree branches. So if you see a little tree sticking up from the surface of the snow and you think, oh, how cute, a little tree looks like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. Um, there may be monster tree underneath. You don't know how deep the snow is. So that's where you get these, um, uh, God, what do we call them as ski patrollers? Uh, um, um, wind, not a, wind wells, tree well, tree well. Um, if you step on that tree or you get too close to that tree, I would give those things a good three or four feet berth around because branches are extend obviously away from the trunk down below the snow and those branches have been collecting solar radiation melting the snow around them you got a lot of air pockets you step near that tree you may be down at the bottom of that tree before you know it and of course what happens and, and what happened with all of the skiers and the downhill ski areas because the skiers love to go into the powder and dice it up in the trees they get too close to a tree they fall through they head plant into it and when we would ski up as patrollers, all we'd see is the snowboard sitting there on the surface upside down with a person hanging from their snowboard down through the tree branches and usually dead because what happens is, is all that powder snow falls in and around their face and they can't breathe and they die. So you, but it made it easy for us because we would figure they're attached to the snowboard. We simply grab the snowboard and pull them out and just start doing CPR and that kind of stuff. But that is true too with trees you see, logs you see, rocks you see buried in snow. If there's powder, you're going to sink in. If the surface of the snow is so soft because uh, you're in the thaw, you're going to post hole down to the ice layer that you're going to hope will hold you. It doesn't. And then you just cascade on down like, you know, the cartoons where you fall through the floors of the building and all that sort of junk and Iron Man lives as always. Um, so that's a hazard that you may not be able to interpret with your headlamp. Your headlamp only shows some things in front of you. So don't be so tempted to think, yeah, man, I'm going to get up at two. I'm going to be off by three. I'm going to get to the pass by sunrise. That's great, but you may be on the wrong passes, which is what happened to four PCT northbound through hikers that I ran into uh, from uh, the South Fork of the Kings River going up toward Mather Pass one year, I saw them from a distance and they were way over here on this other saddle. And I thought, what the hell are they doing over there? You know, I knew where they should go, but they didn't. And they didn't have any other footprints to follow because everybody figures, well, hell, I'm just going to follow footprints because the guy in front of me knows where they're going, right? Wrong. Um, so, um, people attend, have a tendency to believe that if they're not right on top of the trail, you know, eight feet up or two feet up or whatever it is, they're lost. And so they'll do the best they can. Also, it's complicated, this mistake, which leads to a disaster because they're, they're relying upon strip maps. They're relying upon their little electronic, whatever it is, that shows them only so much. And if they want to see more, They've got to, you know, shrink it down and then they lose all the detail so that they can't navigate. So they expand it back and then they can't see the past because it's off the screen. So they don't know really quite where to go. Whereas a paper map shows you everything at the same level of detail. So I would highly recommend that you guys take paper maps plus whatever. And remember, electronics fail in the cold and wet. Uh, to illustrate that point, <laughs> um, as a patroller, 
I was very tempted oftentimes to put my cell phone in an outside pocket of my vest or outer shell, depending upon how the hell cold it was. Um, and then I'd fly on down the hill to get to somebody or get to some task I had to do. What would happen would be was at, by the time I got to the bottom of the hill, which wasn't very far, the phone was totally dead, black screen, unresponsive because of the cold. So your electronics, everybody, protect them as best you can. Uh, don't have them on the outside of your body thinking, oh, my body heat will keep it warm. I can pull it out and take pictures whenever I want. When you've got wind blowing around you, you've got snow blowing around you, and you're the fool for thinking you could have gone out today because um, uh, it's going to be nice. You know, what happens, and here's another, I'm, I don't know why I'm getting into stories today. Um, one time I left thinking it was a nice, going to be a beautiful day. I left a base camp behind Squaw Valley Ski Area. I was on the PCT. It wasn't a PCT yet. What do we call it? I mean, it wasn't even a TRT yet. And it wasn't a Tahoe Yosemite because we were north of there. But anyway, it was a trail. Um, I left my tent and my gear, my partner and I, and we went up to, we wanted to go up to the top of Squaw Peak, which wasn't very far, probably a mile and a half or two. So we left our gear except for um, maybe some water. You know, this is when I was all of, 16 or 15 and I was preparing for my PCT through hike at 17. Well, the wind picked up. I didn't know anything about weather prediction. I didn't know the signs in the sky that would tell me that something was coming in. I didn't know how to read wind directions and stuff, stuff like that. So lo and behold, the wind came up and started blowing surface, soft surface snow. This was during the month of January or February. Soft, soft surface snow isn't wet, it's crystalline. So it's really cold. So when it hits you in the face, it digs in and sticks. So what happened was because the wind was blowing the snow, the first foot or, foot or two above the surface, I started losing the ability to navigate, to avoid objects in the surface. I couldn't see them anymore. It was like walking in a creek of moving snow, snow powder flying all over the place. Um, and it only got worse. As the wind picked up, that amount of flying snow rose up to our faces and over our heads. Got to the point where I had to cry. I had to get to the top. We did get to the top of the of the, the hill where there was a lift shack. You know, the little buildings next to the ski lift where the guy, the operator sits in to hit the panic button should you fall off the chair. We got into that thing and weathered the storm. And that storm blew all night long and dumped three or four feet of snow. It's a long story, but we eventually got out of there and we freaked out the operator at the bottom of Squaw Valley Ski Area because we picked up the phone inside the lift shack to call for help the next morning. And she said, nah, you're lying. She hung up. And then she thought about it for about five minutes or two minutes. And then she called back. She called back to the lift shack. I don't know how she pulled that one off. And uh, she said, are you shitting me or are you really where you say you are? You're on the top of Squaw Peak in a lift shack? And we said, yeah. But anyway, that was a long story. Ended up dumping about six, seven feet of snow over the course of a few days. And by the time we got back to our tent, which is a whole ordeal, our tents were completely buried. We couldn't find them. We had to go based off of a memory of where we roughly placed the tent and then dig around, stomp around with our feet, see if we found tent poles. And we did, obviously. But anyway, I digressed there. Um, questions? I can't remember where I was at. Snow surfaces, wind. Come on, Carol, help me out. I can't remember where I left off. Um, 
We don't have any questions, but. Um... Okay. I think I was still horsing around with the time of year in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, yes, your conditions in the North Cascades will be very similar to your conditions in, in the Sierra for early season. The biggest danger in the North Cascades is the fact that you're on really steep pitches. If you're not in the valley, um, you're on, on steep slopes going up to a ridge, following the ridge, dropping down somewhere along the line. So you're going to have the, the problem of negotiating steep slopes on snow as well as dodging in and around trees. So the problem up there is that if you eat it, if you fall, if you slip, you're going to crash into a tree or go over a cliff. Um, the North Cascades have lots of cliffs. I was involved in a search and rescue once up there because I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, a backpacker walking on a couple feet of snow, very, very familiar with walking on snow, um, had made a small error in uh, having the wrong type of traction device. He had something shallow like uh, micro spikes when he needed something you know, with more teeth, like hiking crampons. And so his, his chains balled up or, or got filled in with snow and he slipped and he couldn't self-arrest. I don't remember if he even had an ax or a device with him and he went over a cliff and died. And the helicopter only found him because he had a blue and John Ladd may remember these sort of things. Some of you older guys, you remember when there was Ensolite, Ensolite uh, sleeping pads, those foam things. They were like, what, half inch thick. And then somebody had the brilliant notion a long time ago to come out with a different kind of material that was blue or green and didn't compress as much. And they called it Osolite. And that is what the helicopter saw was this blue sleeping pad sprawled out on the snow. So if you ever get into a situation where you need to be rescued, have something unnatural um, based color of, of an unnatural color to your environment that you can put out on the snow, red, orange, blue. The helicopter pilots usually say blue works great, red, international orange works great. And then if you have neither, so you, there's so much involved with snow travel, but it's all very exciting. And see, so if I get excited, I can see smiles come up on your faces. Otherwise it's like, oh God, they're, they're falling asleep on me. Um, <laughs> uh, you want to have something that you can move across the field of vision of the pilot. So what they will tell you, and since in search and rescue, when you go through, I've been through two academies because I work for two different sheriff's departments, but the pilots will tell you, move something across my field of vision. Take your sleeping pad and raise it up and down. Don't just wave it around. That's okay. But they want, they want, they want movement. They want to see something traveling. You know, like you'd see a deer walking across a slope. Well, they want to see that kind of thing. If you stomp out a pattern in the snow, they may not recognize it as being foreign to the area. And um, they may not get it. But if it's a high contrast, if it's a different color, if it's moving, that catches their attention. What about yellow thermarest? We have a specific question about that. Well, that's fine. Do you find a whole lot of yellow on snow? Do you find a whole lot of yellow in nature at all, unless it's a flower? And that's too small for really a helicopter to pick out. Maybe yellow on a, in a wheat field might not stand out. But I think that's a good one. Yeah, yellow is great. See, a long time ago, back in the 60s and 70s, a lot of outdoor products were made 
with bright colors for this reason. And also because it looked great in the camera. You know, everything else is blue and, and green and, and gray, you know, gray for rocks. So if you had a nice orange tent or red tent or something pretty, you know, it looked great. You know, here I am, guys, I'm out camping. Here's a picture of my tent. Um, but then in the 80s, everybody got like, oh, my God, there's so many people up in the mountains. And it's like, I can see that guy's tent over there and it ruins my picture, you know. So the manufacturers went to uh, eco natural whatever colors and um, yeah, but you know, it doesn't look good in the camera if you're taking pictures of you horsing around in camp. And um, if you do get in trouble, um, it's, you know, a blue or a green tent in a forest, eh, kind of hard to see when you're a pilot, you know, several feet off the deck, not feet, hundreds of feet off the deck. So, um, I don't know how we got into that one. Uh, you see, there's so much to share. Anyway, um, back to, we got the North Cascades, we got South Park. Oh yeah, the trees. Um, I was walking, I was teaching a class uh, in the North Cascades, going northbound from Hearts Pass, middle of June, because gee, you know, back in um, uh, the 90s or, or early thousands, 2000s, everybody said, oh yeah, it's June 15th from Hearts Pass, man. Go up there and that's when you start. So we all thought that was it. So I started teaching up there. And so I'm, I'm going across this steep slope uh, north of Harts Pass. I can't remember what the peak was called, but I had three or four students behind me. I'm postaling somewhat. It's mid-morning. Um, it's overcast, so the snow is a little bit colder. Um, and there's trees all around us. My, the guy right behind me, thought, okay, I'm just going to step in Ned's footprints because he didn't slip. Uh, he didn't um, post toll any further, you know, because when you step and you compress snow, it packs it down, right? It also heats it up and warms it up a little bit, and it'll refreeze and make a nice hard uh, platform for other people um, to walk on. But as soon as they compress it further, they're heavier than you. Maybe they have smaller feet, whatever combination. And uh, they can post oil again. Well, that's what happened with this guy. He post oil in my footprint. The slope is, say you got a slope and you're going across the slope and you're standing vertical because you don't stand 90 degrees to the slope. <laughs> that wouldn't work. Um, and so what happens is, is that when you fall, when you slip, when your feet go out from under you, you compensate. Your upper body, your brain says, oh shit, I got to go that way. And gravity doesn't help and takes over. And next thing you do is you totally head plant. And then you tumble. It's not a graceful thing. And it's not a controlled thing. So therefore, when you have to self arrest, it has to be reflexive. You have to have your self arrest device in your hand right at that moment. So, so you can hold it up. Ah. You can hold up your axe and go, Oh, there it is. Get into position roll to the shoulder that has the pick. And we'll talk about that, or you'll see it in the video here shortly. Um, he didn't have enough time. Over the length, the distance of the length of a car, the tree wasn't that far away. He had sufficient velocity to break three ribs when he impacted the tree. That was the first tree. The second tree took part of his scalp and ripped it off, or avulsed it back. Didn't, didn't kill him. He was there in a sort of a pile at the base of the tree. Right beyond the tree was a cliff. 
So in a way, you know, he didn't go over the cliff, but, you know, I come up to him and I see him holding the top of his head and I start asking questions to see if he's had any kind of a level of consciousness change, you know, assessing him because I was a paramedic for years and he was fine. You know, he says, ow, it hurts on my ribs. Now it hurts up here. Otherwise I'm okay. But he couldn't go any further and he had to be flown out. We had to call in the helicopter, etc. So it doesn't take a lot of distance to get yourself into a major mess in the North Cascades if you don't have your act together on snow. Now, let's get into what that means. Because the video is going to talk a lot about it and I want to get to that. But I just want to clarify a couple of things that seem to me to be unclear in the video. First of all, if you have an ice axe and you're traversing a slope, so you're going across a slope, people ask, my students ask, which hand should the ice axe be in? Your uphill hand or your downhill hand? Hey, there we go. Nice, pretty red. Good for the camera. I like that. Um, who is that? Mac, good choice. All right, ice axes go in your uphill hand. The ice axe is a mountaineering tool. It is intended to be certified to take all kinds of force, chopping, uh, used as an anchor for all manner of things, and picking into uh, waterfalls and all kinds of junk. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not the climber. Uh, I, I did enough climbing to get myself into a lot of trouble. And I said, screw this, this is too dangerous. And so I'm doing this, it's like, right. Um, this goes in your uphill hand. Now, a big point I want to make is that if you have a slope, I'm going to use a, a whippet. So here's your other device of choice. So it's a ski pole, walking stick with a fixed pick. But I'm going to use it as my slope angle. If you're going across the slope, this axe needs to be in your uphill hand. But it needs to be sunk all the way down to the head of the ax on the surface in your uphill hand next to your body. Why? Because should you suddenly, here you are standing here, ax is uphill. Should you suddenly go, oh shit, and fall over, you are permanently by a tether that's connected to the head of the ice ax and connected to your wrist, you're permanently attached to this thing. It is therefore an anchor to protect you. Now, if you were to go out on the trail, God, anywhere where there aren't people trained in this, what are you going to see? You're going to see people using their ice axe as a walking stick in their uphill hand if they were smart enough to have it in their uphill hand, but they don't know what the hell to do with it. So they waggle it around in their uphill hand and they let it scratch the surface maybe, you know. It is intended to be plunged into the surface of the snow as an uphill anchor. Now, it's not, I might as well get into this because I don't know if I get into this in the video. When, are you guys all savvy? You, you're with me on this, right? Nod heads, okay? There's one question that's relevant okay. here. Can a whippet replace an ice axe? I will get into that. Okay, great. So I'm, I'm getting there, mm -hmm. but excellent question. <laughs> Those of you who know me know which way I'm going to go with that, but I'm not going to cheat and spill the beans right now. So slope, you're going across the slope. It doesn't apply. This issue doesn't apply when you're going straight up or straight down. Straight up is the safest way to go up a hillside 
if the slope stability is in question. If you think that the, the, the soup that you're walking on might slide, don't walk across it, walk straight up it or avoid that area completely. Avoidance is the first thing you wanna do and going straight up is the second. Avoid dangerous areas if you can. If you can't, that's how you deal with it. You go straight up it. If you don't like the conditions while you're going straight up, then find another hill slope further away. But it's always avoidance first. Anyway, um, the problem comes is that when you sink this plumb, plumb meaning if I simply hang on to the, the axe right now, it's going to hang vertical, which is called plumb. It's not going to hang at an angle one way or another. Gravity is going to cause it to hang vertical. So therefore, if you are on a slope and you stab in your ice axe parallel to your legs because you're standing vertical and you sink this puppy and that's all great and you sink it down to the head like you're told to do and you fall, if it's, at, if it's vertical, it may easily pull when you jerk against the head of it depending upon the hardness of the snow layers beneath the surface, it may jerk up and out. So therefore, when you sink in or set your ax, don't set it necessarily vertical, set it slightly angled up into the hill. So when it's sunk in at an angle, more acute to the hillside, and you jerk on it, you may just jerk it to vertical. You may jerk it a little past vertical as it saves your life, but it won't go so far as to come up and out because that's what they'll do. If the snow is softish, it'll, it'll pull up and out. And the mechanics actually are, it'll slide over in the hole. And because it's getting further and further and further pointing downhill, it'll just come right out. So critical, critical, critical. If you're traversing a steep hillside, Ice axe is in your uphill hand and it is sunk as an anchor. Okay, acutely to the hillside. Now, what is that going to do with your upper body? You're screwed. <laughs> as a hiker, you're not a climber, you're a hiker. You've got a monkey on your back that has some weight to it. And as soon as you bend over, you know, you bend over at the waist, where's your center of gravity? It's out ahead of your feet. Where's your plumb line from that center of gravity? Yeah, looks like ahead of my feet. So you're really um, in an awkward balance position. This is really important stuff. So I'm, I'm glad we're getting into it. I didn't expect to get into it, but it's really good. You look at hikers as they're traversing the hillside, say on Forrester, Mather, whatever. They haven't quite figured it out. Forrester, Forrester is your first pass. So it, all the mistakes usually happen there, which isn't cool because it's an 800 foot drop and it's usually not a pleasant landing. But at least you, oh, and you could actually end up in the lake too if it was open, but it's usually not. So your hazards are when you fall on snow, trees, boulders, uh, cliffs, and wonderful lakes and creeks. You know, after tumbling all the way down the hill, you end up in a lake. You might have your senses about you to, to get out of your pack and swim to the surface or whatever, or you may just drown. But anyway, I digress. So when this is sunk, I know, see, it's like, this is the way I go. I just get freaking rolling and, and see, you guys are laughing. So this is good. Um, uh, where was I going? Oh yeah. So you're bent over at the waist, you're off balance. The first 
thing you want to do is prevent a fall. How do you prevent a fall? Well, hell, it's not by walking across a steep ass slope out of balance. How do you, what is the most comfortable balance position you can have? Upright, over your feet. How do you accomplish that on a, on a steep hillside? You want to take your body and support it with poles. What we talked about last uh, Saturday about crossing creeks applies here too, because gravity is your creek in this case. Gravity wants to push you sideways on that traversing hillside. So where your head goes is where your body follows. If I, left, if I let my head go a little bit downhill, here's your hillside. If I let my body go a little bit out of plumb, I'm no longer over my feet like I'd like to be. To save this, what do you do? If you, if you find yourself losing your balance, what do we all do? We take our poles and we stab them out to the side and catch our balance. Or we do what I call a wild ass step is where you take your, you take your, your lower foot and step way out here and you try and catch your balance because your head, eh, eh, gotta get my images, right? Your head now is over here. Take the wild ass step and now I'm vertical again. I'm not on the trail, who the hell cares, but I just saved my life. So when you're bent over, that's bad. I wanna control my upper body. I wanna keep my head upright. How do I do that? I do that with two poles. That prevents that problem of losing where the head is. You want your head over your feet. So to prevent a fall, I wanna control where this goes. I do it with my poles. Poles are not placed as we talked about last Saturday too, because a lot of this stuff crosses over. You're not swinging your poles folks next to your feet. You're swinging them out at 10 o'clock and two o'clock. If the top of my head is 12, I'm planting my poles out at 10 and two or 10 and two or <laughs> however you, you see this. You want to create a broad triangle of, eh, would be the other way, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, heart, whatever you want to call it. Uh, base of contact, pole, pole, feet. So as you're going across that slope, okay, so God, now how do I do this? Because on the uphill side, my pole the handle is going to be way the hell up there. On the downhill side, my pole is going to be way down there. So you got one that's way up and one that's way down. So if you'll notice on some poles, like this one, you see this secondary grip down here, down low. That's a traverse grip. The head is way up here. What's the distance? It's about 16 inches maybe between the two. And that might be just perfect for me to grab in my uphill hand, okay? That way I'm not reaching way up here on, and throwing my balance off. Hold your pole down low on the uphill side. Maintain your sense of balance. Secondly, your downhill pole, which in this case will always be a whippet should you choose to go this way. If you have an ice axe, uphill hand. Whip it, downhill hand. This thing cannot be plunged in to be an anchor. It's a ski pole. Hello, it doesn't work that way. But it can control, help me control where my head's going. So, and if it's in the downhill hand, most people fall downhill. So where are you gonna go? You're gonna fall toward your pick. 
it makes it a little bit easier to self-arrest and faster to self-arrest if this is in your downhill hand. So always have it in your downhill hand. Next question comes up, well, what do I do if I make a switchback? So you just went this way, now you're going the other way. In the switchback, take a breath, pause, change hands. Whip it should also always be strapped. Your other pole, which I didn't pull out, um, is unstrapped on a questionable slope. You don't want to have two poles swinging around in the air attached to you, hitting you in the head, whatever. Jettison the other one, save your life, go back and get it later. Have your buddy who's behind you watching the entire event um, get it for you. So whip it goes in the downhill hand. This, yeah, I see it. Wait a minute. Let me finish my thought. This thing needs to be planted next to your downhill foot. It shouldn't drift way up ahead at two unless you have to let it do so. Because if you lose your balance and your head starts going downhill, you're going to need to push against the top of something. So if this is way ahead at two o'clock, it's not going to work so good for catching your balance. So don't let this one drift too far from your the side of your downhill foot. Now, I think I killed that one. Um, and you can extend it. If it's, you don't wanna be reaching down, then you're compensating your upper body again. So extend your downhill pull, shorten your uphill pull. Carol. Yeah, this is my own question. So um, when I hiked, I just had an ice ax. I didn't have a whip it. Um, and you mentioned um, something about having like a leash. Would you, if you only have an ice ax, do you recommend having a leash on that? Cause I did and I thought it worked out, but. Well, imagine this scenario. You're going across the slope and you, you eat it and you, you're, not, you're not attached to the ice axe. Okay, yeah, I'm hanging on to it. I'm hanging on to my ice axe. But I just fell. What happens to most people is your body mass with pack is sufficient to break your grip. And you're probably also twisting because you just hit the deck and you're twisting at the same time as you're tumbling. You're not gonna be able to hang on to this. It's the tether, it's the leash that's gonna cause you to come to a stop before you get going. And as I just told with the story about the guy in the North Cascades, my student, it didn't take a whole lot of distance to come up to speed enough to break ribs and tear his skin off. So that leash is vital. Now, a lot of times climbers have them because they're, they're chipping overhead. They're making hand grips. They're working on anchors that they're gonna screw in or whatever they do with ice. If this thing flies out of their hand and they're precariously perched on somewhere, they've gotta be able to get it back. So that helps for them. But in another aspect, as I said, this is the definitive mountaineering tool. Most hikers don't know what to do with it, but be leashed. Otherwise you're gonna lose it and it's just not gonna do any good. It's not because you lost it, because it can't save your life being your anchor. So if, you're, if you choose to have an ice ax, make sure it has a leash. I don't care if you use parachute cord or something, but make it, you know, get a commercial leash and attach it or make sure it comes with one or make your own. Uh, the differences between ice axes and, and whippets. You wanna go into that one? Yeah, and just just um, as a I warning, I guess, we have about 20-ish minutes and then we're gonna get into the Q&A. I guess we could go a little bit into the Q&A too, if you want. Um, 
I see 1111. Uh, were we going to do two and a half hours? Yes. So at 1130, we were going to switch over. Okay. Let me kill some more of these main concepts, show the video and switch over. Okay. Can we great. do that? Yeah. Whip it is not a mountaineering tool. It was designed for backcountry skiers to use should they fall and be caught in a situation where they're speeding down the hill out of control and they need to self-arrest or arrest themselves, you know, uh, from going any further. So that's where the term comes from. The main principle for a snow hiker is that um, since most don't know the concepts of, of uh, what we're talking about today, even, you know, that the snow is comprised of layers or certain layers that are slipperier than others. Some may avalanche, they may not bond with each other. Um, some exposures will have more snow, some will have less. And so therefore, if I'm going, I find myself in a certain place, it may be more risky. Most hikers don't know how to identify risk. Uh, and that's very important because if you're looking at a slope and you're saying, oh, my God, you know, uh, Johnny and Jill and Peter and, and Brian, they've already gone across. I feel like an idiot standing here going like, oh, shit, I'm not familiar with this. You need to know what risk looks like. If anything makes you feel like that, you're already off balance. So get some help, get some guidance. Uh, don't progress because everybody else went over the cliff. Are you going to go over the cliff too? What is that old expression? I can't remember. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, so get, let me get back to the, to the whipping thing. To have a self-arrest device in your hand at all times, because who knows when they're going to fall down? I don't know when I'm going to fall down. Do you know when you're going to slip suddenly? Do you know when you're going to hit a, a, an icy rock that's beneath the snow surface and your feet don't get a bite on it because you're wearing your trail runners and they're soft rubber and they don't do so good on ice? And suddenly you're on your ass and you're tumbling down the hill? And where's your ice axe? It's tied on the back of your pack. I'm not exaggerating by saying that I have seen this happen many times because here I am out there on the all the descents down to the creeks before you get to Forrester and people don't know squat about the snow. The hikers around us that are not in the class that are bombing on up to the next uh, pizza which is past Kearsarge and that's all they're thinking about when they go flying by our class that's what they're talking about you know the next meal. Um, they're not thinking about risk because they don't know what risk looks like until they suddenly fall. Where is their ice axe? It's on the back of their pack. I look at them falling down Forrester, rolling on down because it happens in the bottom of the slope. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's like if you're a downhill skier and you, you stop at the side of the slope and you're just taking a break and you watch all the other skiers going by and somebody eats it. And it's like a flat out yard sale. You know, the poles go everywhere. The skis jettison and pop off. The, their, their, their gloves go this way. The hat flies off the other way. It's what we call a yard sale. But that's what happens with, with um, uh, the backpackers. And it's like, yeah, there's the ice axe. Wasn't it great to have a nice hood ornament on their pack? Makes them feel cool. Hey, look at me. I've got an ice axe. Yeah, it's, it's mounted pretty on the back of my pack but do i know what the hell to do with it no so it's a false sense of security it's a it's a joke know what to do with it but more importantly know when to use it so therefore know what risk looks like if something looks a little iffy in front of you stop i know it's really difficult for a through hiker to change gears much less go from zero from 60 to zero because it's all about getting to that next pizza right so nobody wants to stop Nobody wants to be in the back of their little group. Nobody wants to look like they're, they're not able to handle it. 
So even if you've got that little um, uh, yellow light go off in your head going, you know, danger, danger, Will Robinson, it's like, don't go forward, further forward. Um, they'll proceed on. You need to be able to stop, go like, holy shit, okay, well, do I know what to do with that? They are going across, does that mean I know what I'm doing? They're, they're banging in a boot track, that's nice, but I still don't feel comfortable with that. So drop your pack, get out your ice axe, put your pack back on, ice axe goes in the uphill hand and sink it. Yeah, if you sink it, your body's gonna be bent over, but you have something. Don't just waggle the ice axe on the surface of the snow and think it's gonna do you any good. Because chances are, even if you fall, is loosely held in your hand, probably not tethered, and it's going to be left uphill with the yard sale. So a whippet is priceless because it's in your hands all the time. It may not be rated for chopping into icy waterfalls. It may not be rated to be uh, an anchor for um, 100 foot, 150 foot um, a pitch, uh, rappel that kind of thing, but it's only there to one, maintain your balance because you have a snow basket and a snow basket is gonna stay on the surface of the snow more or less. The, the point is gonna get enough of a bite into the ice or whatever below to give you a, a non-moving anchor to control where your head is going as you're pushing against your pole. A, a slight aside, is that how do you hold the damn thing? Do I use a whippet like I would use my walking stick that I've just used for 700 miles uh, in Southern California? Most hikers rarely change their hand position. You're gonna be palming the top a lot. You're gonna be using your hand in this way so the pick comes out the index finger or to where the pick comes out the little finger. This happens to be your self-arrest position, or you're gonna be flat out palming the top because what you're doing is you're pushing because when you're on the uphill, both poles are behind you. New idea, hmm, didn't do that on Dre Trail, but you're gonna do it on snow because there's no confine of an 18 inch wide trail. You can put your poles both behind you and what do you wanna do? You wanna palm the top, and you want to push off of them to get your upper body. It's all about where your head's going. So if you're going uphill, push your head uphill. Your poles should not be out in front of you. If you're on the downhill, where are your poles? They're in front of you. They're breaking. So you're pushing against the top of your pole. If you do this on the downhill, what happens? Your wrist takes a lot of the, the banging. Okay, you say, all right, Ned, you know what? I'm going to... I'm going to thoroughly support my wrist and I'm still going to hold on to it like this. Fine, do that. That works. If that works for you, great. So, uh, whippets are priceless. You don't so much as need an ice axe. You need a self arrest device. You need the pick. You need something like that, which is on the ice axe, to save your life. But if it's stuck on the back of your pack, what the hell good was it? So I required of my students, you come to class with shoes that have, <laughs> here we go again, shoes that have a 90 degree angle right here. This should be a 90 degree angle from the side of your shoe to the bottom of your shoe. Why? Because when placed on edge, 
That is what holds you to the slope. You don't have, say, a nice flat boot track to walk in. You may have, if you're early in May, you maybe have a lot of slopes that are at an angle. It's the edge of your boot, folks. Let me see if I can get this into the light. It's this, it's this 90 degree angle, which is hard. I cannot push on it with my finger and, and make it go from 90 degrees to a round surface. A round edge means ski. So if I can take this 90 degree edge and turn it into a round, soft, mushed, mushed surface, it has no bite. And it's, it's going to go zip right on down the hill. Next thing you know, you're on your head. So my students had to bring a, a boot with a non-compressible edge to its sole and a whippet. Those two things will build your confidence. They will maintain your balance. They will prevent falls and they will self-arrest a fall. Uh, Whippet goes in the downhill hand, ice axe in the uphill hand. I'm, I'm about ready to show the video. Um, and I knew in the video, it didn't I didn't clarify that. Any other questions before we go into a 20 minute little deal? We have a couple, but I think we'll save it till after the video because your video might cover it. All right, here we go. Hey everybody, this is Ned from Mountain Education. We are here at Forester Pass. Our camp elevation at the base it? of the pass is 12,500 feet. And the pass up there is 13,200 feet. This is on the border of Sequoia National Park and Kings Canyon National Park on the PCT and John Muir Trail. Right now, we happen to have a couple of hikers on, the, on their way up, but it's about eight o'clock in the morning. The ice or the snow is very frozen. And I want to begin a discussion and demonstration of all the skills you're gonna to need to know to be safe and confident on a through hike ascent and descent of Forester Pass. Now, before we get into that, I want you to appreciate where we are. These little lakes right here really don't have a name, but it's your last water source before you go up. And then as the camera continues to pan, you'll see the next peak on over is Caltech Peak. And then as you look down the current drainage, you'll see numerous peaks in the uh, uh, West, the Great Western Divide, I believe it's called, and the Coahias, the Coahia Peaks, Black Coahia, way down there. And then Diamond Mesa is this giant garden wall sort of thing. I call it the garden wall only because that's the similar structure on the, the northern end of the Continental Divide Trail. At any rate, what I want to show you, I'm going to start with the basics. Basics meaning uh, ascent basics. When you're on dry trail and you come upon snow what i want you to do is to realize that you can't push hard because your feet will slip i don't know if the camera can catch it but if i push off my toes my foot actually slips so you're going to learn to walk kind of flat footed you're also going to need to have shoes that are fairly rigid on the sole you need to have a shoe that has a, a 90 degree angle on the side of the shoe or on the boot that won't soften and bend as you place your weight on its edge. Use your uphill edges of both feet to climb a snow berm. 
even if it's a little guy. You're walking along dry trail and you hit uh, a drift, a small little drift across the trail. Plan your route before you get to it and simply kick your way up that thing until you're on top. Remember, don't push too aggressively now that you're on snow because you'll slip. A slip on any amount of snow, whether it's a couple inches thick or feet thick, if it's on a steep angle, it can mean a slip and fall and a slide into whatever's under uh, below you, trees, rocks, lake, etc. So don't be too aggressive when you get up to the top of the snow, the snow drift on the trail or even here, because a slip and fall would be a, uh, an injury sort of causing situation. Okay. Since I'm doing this, let's continue with this. Use the edges of your boots to traverse and ascend. There are other ways, and I'll get to that in a second. When you get to the point where you're really tired of always leaning your knees over into the hill, um, I want you to learn how to, without falling, uh, switch back. Sounds pretty simple, but you actually go into kind of a herringbone with your feet. Toes going that way, toes going that way. Then come around and continue with the other edge like that. Herringbone. One thing I like to show you that works really well for my balance is that when you kick, when you're coming up the hill, place your pole uphill, herringbone, change. You're balanced on your pole and then go again. Herringbone, change. I'm pivoting on my pole. There you go like that. A self-arrest pole is the best thing for this environment for a snow hiker because it's always in your hand as opposed to an ice axe which you're probably carrying on your back when you're not so sure of the conditions ahead you can't quite identify you're not aware of the ice ahead you're going from sun to shade and suddenly it, you're in the shade and it's icy but you didn't notice it so the, the ice axe is still on your back you hit the steep trees and down you go this is always in your hand. Okay, other ascent techniques would be to kick a step. It's really hard this morning because it's very hard. You kick a step, you balance on your pole, and you go straight up like so. You keep your heels up and your toes down. If you have a, an ice axe that you can plunge, that is your self belay, that is your anchor. So if this was an ice axe, I would run it all the way, uh, run the shaft all the way into the ground, into the snow. And on the steep stuff up here, I pull myself up on the axe while kicking with my feet and then replace, do it again and work you up way up the steep stuff. Uh, that's another ascent technique. Probably the safest if you're in avalanche terrain. Uh, because your tracks across a slippery new amount of snowfall and great, uh, greater amounts than a foot on a icy surface, that foot will not be stable. So your tracks in a traverse will cause a fault line, which then may in initiate a slide. So go straight up. Safest thing to do. 
okay, so we've got uh, using the edges of our boots. We've got switchbacks. We've done towing in straight up. Let's do self-arrest. I'm only gonna cover the basics. If you want further instruction, you need to take a class somewhere. A lot of colleges offer outdoor education classes. This obviously is mountain education. So we'll take you out and teach you from about January on through August. Um, if you're southbound on the PCT, there's a lot of snow up there. You need training up there and it's very steep and wooded. So self-arrest position is this. Could you go get your ice axe? I'd love it. Then we'll compare. Um, we have one ice axe in our snow advanced course that we take from Kennedy Meadows to Kearsarge Pass takes 10 days. There's a shortened version that runs from Cottonwood Pass for six days over Forrester and out Kearsarge. And uh, one of our students has an ice axe rather than whippets. So I'll be able to demonstrate both. But the self-arrest, the way you hold an ice axe is always the same, whether it's a whippet, which is a self-arrest pull by Black Diamond, or an ice axe, put your thumb under where the ads would be. The ads is that um, broad blade that sticks out one end. So you got the ads and you've got your pick right here. So pick, ads, shaft, point for the general description of the orientation of a self-arrest pole or an ice axe. Thumb under the ads, fingers across the top. So fingers will come straight across the top like that and wrap around. Pick comes out the little finger side of your hand, always. Tell you what, let's do this with the, thanks Ralph. Perfect. Sometimes it's just easier to see with an ice axe. So thumb under the ads, fingers across the top. Position, no matter if you've got a whippet or an ax, Hands hanging straight down, bring this straight up, elbows in. Rotate your hand so the pick comes out forward. Don't worry about the ads being close to your shoulder. Won't be a problem. Then with your wrist, push the shaft over to your other hand. Your other hand should be, whoops, your other hand should be locked in right next to your hip bone right here. So when it comes down to the question, how long of an ice axe should I have? It should be long enough to go from here to here and have maybe a couple inches sticking out the end. That allows for control while you're self-arresting so that this guy doesn't drift up. A short little axe is like a, you're on a little perch and you don't have as much leverage to keep it from swinging. So get a longer axe than than a, a climber would use. A climber wants a short axe because he's swinging this thing and also have a leash so that it can be attached to you. I know that if you lose control of your axe in a fall and it's a tethered to you, I can kind of demonstrate here. If it's tethered to you, like you would do with a whippet, this is gonna swing around and stuff and I don't know where it is and I'm on my back. At least you can find it, get into position, lock it in, and here's the, the main expression I want you to learn from a self-arrest class is go to the pick. So here's your pick. Let me demonstrate. Basics. Ah. 
tethered in, right? Okay. Step one. Get this right. Okay. Thumb under the ads, fingers across the top, pick forward. It doesn't make any difference how long this thing is because I'm gonna face you so you can see what I'm doing. I'm locked in. Let me come this way just to here. I'm locked in. I want you to lay back and roll over to the pick. Feet up. If you're, if you're having a hard time, like I say feet up, feet up is a habit. If I've got crampons on, I don't want them to engage the snow. If I've got crampons on, I'm digging in with my toes. I may get too much resistance from my feet digging in and the teeth digging in, that I'm simply gonna go airborne and, and vault. So I always say feet up. If you're in snow conditions that well, aren't slowing you down, like powder, like late afternoon, you're going up Forester and you're post-holing all the way up and you get to the top and oh, great, got to the top. And you start going down and like every fifth step is post-holing into soup. If you have to self-arrest, say you lose your balance and you fall head first and all that kind of stuff, you're gonna find that you're not gonna get any kind of slowing action um, from a self-arrest self-resting with an ice axe or a whippet or any other device really because you're in powder so people will ask how do i self-arrest if i don't have anything like a lot of the through hikers pct continental divide they think well gee whiz you know it's going to be easy i'm going to have dry trail the whole way let's romanticize the whole thing i'm not going to bring anything i want to travel as light as possible so how do i self-arrest if i fall basically the same deal lay back Roll over, get on your elbows and your butt in the air. Jam your elbows into the snow and your toes into the snow and ride it out. It's totally normal to tumble a bit. If you lose your coordination in the sense that you bounce off of a, of a snow berm or a rock or whatever, fight for it. Get back into the self-rest position, whatever you've got. Go to the pick. Ride the, the axe, ride the shaft of the axe right on your chest. You just go right across your chest. Never throw this because it can easily get ripped right out of your hands as soon as that pick digs in. Lock in, go to the pick, just like that. Um, what's the other thing people do? Uh, oh, um, the other thing that happens is that this can come way up there like that. Fight for it, climb back up onto it and put all your weight on that shaft. Don't let it drift away from you. So self-arrest position <laughs> with a whippet, elbows in. Oh, here's the other thing. Don't do this. Glad I just remembered. Self-arrest position, holy crap, I'm falling. You roll over. And what happens is you do this elbow comes out and you go bang and whoa, and you go flying. You don't want the elbows to come out. Lock in. Don't do this. Lock in, lay back, roll over, go to the pick. If you're wearing a pack and it's in the way, I don't care if you have to sit up to clear the pack. Uh, you, the other trick is if the pack really is in the way, like I'm on this hill going up that way, my pick just so, because this is always in my uphill hand, it happens to be in my 
I feel hand here. But my, and I'm facing like this. My pack is in the way. I can't go to the pick. So what do you do? You take the shaft of your ice axe, you go there, and you go the other way. And you go to the pick. With an ice axe, same deal. If I can't roll this way, I can center this and roll this way. Simple enough. Okay, so what have we done? We've got ascent, ascent techniques. We've got self-arrest. How about descent? So I've come up here. My thingy is falling. I'll stick them in here. Um, you're at the top of the pass. Hallelujah, you made it. One of the safest descent techniques while still standing is to simply heel plunge. Just like that. Keep your upper body upright and walk down the hill looking that way. If you bend your waist and you're looking at your feet, it's really easy as you're heel plunging to lose your balance and next thing you know, you're face planting. So you want to keep your back upright. You want to be looking out there. So it's just a heel plunge, just like this. And you can be as aggressive as you want because you want your heel to sink in, but your toes up. You want to use the vertical face, excuse me. You want to use the vertical face on your heel as a break. Okay, so that's one of the more controlled ways. Another way, and I don't think I can do it this morning because it's too crusty, is to get off of your heels and onto the balls of your feet, and you'll find that you can literally skate if I keep my weight on the balls of my feet. Kind of ran into flatter ground down there. Something like that, guys. So that's a skating technique when you feel real confident and balanced. Two pulls. The safest way down is to do a seated glissade. All right, so your pack is on. Your feet are facing down the slope. Your ice axe or whip it becomes your rudder. Now, what I mean by that is you're not locked in in self-rest, but your hand here is going to be really low. I put my hand right on the basket. I'll face you for the moment. I hang on up here just for control. I'll hang on all the way here. I won't hang on here. And as I'm going down the hill, what happens with all this weight up here, it wants to, and the resistance down there with your feet, your body will want to swing around one way or the other from the fall line. So I'm sliding down the hill and my body starts drifting this way. I'll take this point right here and I'll almost like rowing a boat. I'll pull and pull and pull and pull to get my body over my feet. I don't want my feet over there or over there. So as I'm going down the hill, you can row yourself to get started. But if your feet start swinging around, your upper body starts to tip, because that happens with a pack because your center of gravity is so high. If your packs, if you if your upper body starts to tip, grab the grab the snow and pull your upper body back over your feet so you're in line. 
Okay, so I've been showing you this way and a tip that would be this way where I'm pulling myself. But if I'm starting to go this direction, I push, I'll push away up here to get my body, my upper body back in line. So you can pull or push. And then this becomes, usually I'm like this. I don't know if you can see me, let me swing over here. Usually I'm going down the hill like so. I can adjust minorly or majorly to correct my balance and orientation uh, to my feet and to the fall line. I wanna be straight uh, in line with the direction I'm going. Before you start your glissade, very, very important. It's like before you cross a creek, you've gotta check several things. Uh, the creek crossing we'll talk about later, another time. In this setting, you've gotta check your run out. A lot of times, a, a, from the pass or from the ridge, dropping down the creek, whatever, the, the, the slope is not perfectly straight. It'll be kind of convex. So you start your glissade and crap, there's rocks right there. You didn't see them from the beginning and now you're going too fast. So you've got to really scout your glissade route or keep your speed in control and know that you can, as soon as you see the rocks, you can self-arrest. Just stop. It's before you hit the rocks, obviously. So keep that in mind before you start your safest way down, a seated glissade, scout the route. That was great, Ned. Yeah, for some reason, it only recorded for 20 minutes. Okay. <laughs> great so. info. There were a couple follow-up questions, but I don't know if you wanted to kind of continue a little bit about the video or? Uh, the video covered ascent techniques, edging, towing in, um, uh, some of the hazards with trying to traverse across soft slopes. Um, I, I, hopefully you guys understood that that whip it stays in your downhill hand because I was using it for both demonst demonstrating the ice axe and the whip it, it went in every hand. So, uh, and then descent technique safest is to heel plunge straight down or glissade. And so that's why I was talking about some of the glissading details just then. But when it comes to over snow travel, because the snow is all kinds of different angles, whether you're going around a tree, around a boulder, you're going through a creek, you're whatever, you've got to be able to go from edging to flat walking to uh, climbing, um, ascending on an edge. And this is all for you guys that are going to be pre-thaw, um, pre going to be secret season hikers in May. Um, you're walking on a hard surface. Once the surface gets soft, it just becomes a, a lot more difficult. So therefore you ought to travel at night when the snow is a little bit harder, but you'll probably have a boot track uh, to walk in. A boot track, let me just cover this real quick and then I can, I'll probably be done with over snow travel skills. Boot track is a track that's pounded in the snow by other people's feet. So because people walk upright, their feet are then flat. Um, the track on the snow is going to be flat side to side. So if that boot track goes across a slope, it'll be flat like a summer trail. You know, you don't need hiking crampons in that situation. You can do just fine with, with a chain design, micro spike type of attraction device. Um, 
I always take hiking crampons because I just like the fact that I'm never going to slide out of them. A rubber band, a rubber band type thing is what holds this in place on the shoe. And that can easily be, you can easily slide right out of this thing. And it happened to me a couple of times in the Whitney area about 10 years ago when we were, when we were product testing these and we basically said, screw it, make something better. But, and I said, well, why did you design these things anyway? And they said, well, we designed them for people walking around icy sidewalks, maybe doing a little snow running, flat surfaces, maybe a little bit of up, a little bit of down, but not going across a hillside. When you go across a hillside, the boot wants to slide right out of the thing. So it sucks for the, for the hiker, unless you're on a boot track. If you're on a boot track, flat side to side, works just fine. What do you want to do, Carol? I was supposed to remind you to go over the basics of over snow navigation. I don't know if you want to quickly go over that before we do Q&A or if you want to leave that to next week's meeting. Well, a couple of sentences. How about that? Um, you probably will not have any trail signs. You won't see any trail posts. You won't see anything uh, nailed up into trees. Um, uh, blue triangles, blue diamonds, whatever, you know, for a... Um, for a um, day hiker to use snowshoeing with the kids, you know, following a trail. You're out, you're out on the PCT. You, you've got to have your, your act together. <clears throat> so your navigation is based on knowing where the trail goes because you, you look at your topographic map and you see the little dotted line uh, goes up a certain canyon, uh, follows down a, a creek, um, attains a ridge and follows along the ridge. You need to be able to to find by looking straight ahead in three dimensions, what you see in one dimension on your paper. You need to learn how to read in three dimensions, a topo map so that you can see from a vantage point on the trail where the trail is going to go once you get down into the trees and the creek and you can't see anything. And this has happened to a lot of hikers because I bump into them and they're out wandering around in the snow going like, where the hell is the trail? And they're down in the trees because just, we just crossed a creek and they don't know where to go from the creek crossing. You know, it's just snow and trees. So when you're up high, big point, and you're going to go down into a creek, when you're up here, look way over there and look at all the different tributaries coming into the main trunk line of this creek and figure out, all right, I'm going to cross down there. Do I take a creek below there and follow it up? Do I take a creek tributary above there and follow it up? Do I get on a ridge right off the creek and follow the ridge up? So you're really always navigating by line of sight with reference to your topo map or GPS device all the time. I will also carry a, a um, InReach uh, Explorer Plus Garmin device. Um, I've used them for years and years and years. And I will have it in a, in a front pocket or somewhere accessible because I'm always checking the screen because the screen will show me, and it's a big enough screen. You, you can't do it with a little screen. The screen has to show you where the dotted trail goes on the topo map that's in the device uh, and where you are relative to the trail. And that's all you need to know. I don't care if I am navigating over snow and I'm a quarter mile from the trail. As long as I'm parallel to it and I'm gonna end up where it goes, that's what counts. 
back to, it's safer for me to be following the trail on this slope than on the slope that the trail is on. You do everything based on what the, the safety level, uh, slope, snow conditions that the snow is giving you. Don't try and follow the trail verbatim. Got to be on top of it or else I'm lost. Don't do that. Follow the trail any way you can, above and below it, whatever. As long as you know where you are relative to it and you're going in the same direction, you're golden. So really over snow navigation is, take. it takes a lot of, you can't just be um, the guy in the bus traveling through another country and you're just looking out the windows. You got to actually engage with your map and know where you are in this three dimension environment that you're in. So everything you do becomes environmental awareness is really, if you want to boil down all of this crap I've been talking about, it all comes down to being aware of your environment and you in it. Whether you're paying attention to the fact that, oh shit, I'm getting cold, being aware of stuff going on inside of you, I'm not thinking right, I'm too dehydrated, I'm hyponatremic, I'm whatever, to the stuff on the outside of you. I see certain clouds, that means the storm's coming in three days, where am I gonna be in three days? I might wanna rethink things. Um, you know, stuff like that. So environmental awareness to take it out of the kind of the um, ecological point of view. Even the birds will tell you what's going on around you. Even the fact that there's a bear walking across over there, it, that tells you that he's comfortable with his environment. There's so many clues. This is the stuff why people take the classes because all of this stuff comes out. I'll point out to you how you can read like like the Indians, that you, you're living in an environment where you need to establish a direct relationship with it. You pay attention to what it's telling you, what the wind direction tells you. If it's out of the north, it's fair weather. If it's out of the south, it's bad weather. If you see certain clouds, so I'm, this whole, your whole safety, your whole navigation, when you have no trail, is by being aware of uh, shapes of meadows. Because you can find a shape on a map and you can find a shape out in the snow, because there's no trees in the lake, right? So you can figure out where you are based on the shape of that lake or shape of that meadow. Clues like that. Bends and creeks will tell you where you are. Bends and, and creeks, all that kind of stuff. So don't be like I was telling that story about those people up at Mather Pass. They went through the wrong pass. They missed Mather completely. They were way off to the west. I said, well, how did you finally figure it out? They said, well, we were up in the pass looking down at like Fresno. <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> you're supposed to be looking down in the northerly direction, not the westerly direction. So that that dawned on them that they, you know, up in the high bowls, you have no you have no trees. And so you really got to know which notch to go through around you. Which one is the trail going through? A GPS allows you to cheat. But you can you can by learning how to read your map, um, um, get to the same thing. So. Uh, that's all I want to cover on over snow navigation. I'm going to cover it next weekend in detail. Hopefully, um, I am a little technically challenged, so I hope it works. Anyway, Carol. Yeah, so we have um, a couple of questions and then we can open up the floor. So um, the first one, you mentioned the Garmin inReach, right? Um, did you ever have a problem with your Garmin inReach getting too cold or it would lose battery and all that stuff? Or did was the Garmin okay? Because I know you mentioned earlier, like protect your cell phones and everything if it's really cold, because you'll get a black screen. But did you experience that with your Garmin? I've never experienced it with my Garmin. And what you'll do, um, I you basically say, tell yourself, anything electronic is susceptible uh, uh, to cold and wet. 
Um, but the Garmin, the way you use it is it's, is it's easily accessible during the day because you're constantly checking it. You're looking at the screen, you're looking around to see if what the screen is telling you corresponds to things around you that you can see. Uh, you do the same thing with your map. So I'm carrying the Garmin and I've got a paper map in my pocket. I'll go, sometimes if I'm really not quite sure and the topography is changing a lot, um, I'll go like 30, 40 steps and check my map. 30, 40 steps, check the Garmin. You know, make sure I know based on what I'm seeing where I am. At night, uh, when I set up camp, and I always set up about an hour before the sun goes down behind the ridge, because once the sun is done uh, in May, that air is really cold. So you want to be in. You're not doing this long, these long days. You're going to freeze your ass off. So camp about an hour or so before you lose sunlight. Um, and what you'll end up doing is because the garment has to have vision to the night sky, you're going to end up hanging it off of your whippet, off of your ice axe, off of a tree branch, off of a tent, off your tent. You know, you clip it to a, a loop on your tent. And so it's always outside. Uh, it doesn't seem to be affected by the cold. So um, that's the way I've used it. And I've never had a problem. Battery life, um, if it's on all day, and it always is, it lasts about a day and a half. And then I have to, uh, you know, charge it during my, you know, say I'm cooking inside my tent and I'll just hook it up to my battery that's been charging off of a solar panel on the back of my pack during the day. And then I'll recharge the Garmin and then stick it outside for a text home because that's I'll do that in the evening. I'll check back, text back to the office. And it's really simple because you're using your phone to do the actual text texting, but it's Bluetooth to the Garmin and then it's going out to the satellite. So it works great. Yeah, I love the inReach. Okay, great. Um, another quick question. What do you do with your feet when glissading? <laughs> well, did you get the impression that you do not want them uh, in any position other than legs together straight down the fall line? Fall line means if you were to let go of a tennis ball on that slope, what direction would the tennis ball roll? The direction it rolls is the fall line, the line of its fall. So uh, you want your legs in line with a fall line. You want your legs together and you want your heels up. Very, very important. Get your heels up. You don't want your heels engaging against the snow because should they get too big of a bite, like suddenly they hit a mound in the snow and your, your feet just dig in, your upper body's still moving. It has more mass and more power. So what happens is you just like, you just rise right up on your heels and you just head plant down the slope. You do a little Superman and um, it's not fun. So keep your heels up, lean back a little bit to get those feet up and you actually lean back against your pack. So it's really kind of comfortable while you're in a self-arrest or a, um, you're in a rudder position, you're pushing down on your ski pole basket. You don't want to push down on your ski pole with that other hand. What did I do with that thing? Um, because you end up, hand will be up here, thumb under the ads or where the ads would be but your hand does not want to be here. Your hand wants to be down here. So what happens is you end up doing a position like this and you're pushing, literally pushing into the snow with this hand. When you push here, you bend your pole and maybe break it, not so good. If it's an aluminum pole, kill it, great. Just bend it back, no big deal. If you, went, if, if you didn't know better and you got the graphite pole, uh, you could just literally shatter it or, or fracture it really bad and you can't bend it back into place. It doesn't work that way. So if you've got a choice between aluminum and, and um, 
what is it called? Graphite? I can't remember. Um, don't get the aluminum. It's easy to fix in the field. Uh, so did I answer the question? Where are your legs? Mm -hmm. Ah, but here's a here's a little trick. When you're glissading, you have got to stay in control. Not only do you want to know, you want to control where your upper body is going, but you got to make sure that your lower body doesn't spin left or right, as you saw in the video. So, um, where the hell was I going to go with that? Um, you said oh. leg, leg position when you're glissading? You oh, that's control where you're going? It's speed. You want to be able to control your speed. If you follow in somebody's sit smart track that went down like the bobsled run, you already, somebody went ahead of you, you sit in their track and you think, yeah, this is be cool. I'm going to go in somebody else's track. That's fine. But you're going to go a hell of a lot faster in somebody else's track than if, if you were making your own, because you're going to compress the snow with your body weight. If it's already been compressed, it's going to be slick and hard or could be. So if you want to maintain your speed, if you lose control of your speed and you get going too fast, there's only so many ways you can stop or slow it down. One great way is if you take your legs and open them up. What's going to happen is all that soft surface snow is going to pile up inside your legs and slow you down. And say you get too much and it'll pile up. It'll get up, you know, belly button level. And you're still zipping. Simply take one leg, step over the pile to where your legs are together, go around the pile of snow you just created and go on down the hill, gaining speed, open your legs up to slow down, bring your legs together. So it's like in teaching someone how to ski, you've got your pizza, legs apart, you've got your French fries, legs together. Go fast, French fries. Go slow, pizza. Same kind of deal. Great. Um, okay, this one is about Forrester specifically, and I'm trying to picture That's it myself. Um, but somebody asked if they're not comfortable going over Forrester, is there any other way to no. go? To, I didn't think so, but I. Well, I it depends. Before they built Forrester, uh, just to the east of it, um, is um, I saddle. God, got to remember. Center. It, it goes down Center Basin. Um, Junction Peak is to the immediate east of Forrester Pass. And then on the other side of Junction Peak or somewhere right there is a saddle. That used to be the pass that the PCT, well, there wasn't a PCT then, but if somebody wanted to walk from the Kern drainage into the Bubs Creek drainage, they would go through that saddle. Um, it's, it's this, as a matter of fact, when you get to Forrester, you look at that saddle and go, why don't we go that way? It's a lot easier. It's less of a vertical wall. But anyway, um, that's that's what the, the, the trail managers decided to do, put the trail through Forrester Pass. Anyway, so you can go that way, but it's a bit more of a snow mountaineering route than most would like. So I would not suggest it. Bef uh, other than that, uh, to the east and south of Forrester is Shepherd Pass. Shepherd Pass is a active um, entry route, exit route from, you know, to get in and out of the Sierra. However, the east side of it is very vertical. Um, yeah, summer trail goes up, big deal in the summer. But when that eastern face, which doesn't get a lot of warming from the sun, uh, so therefore it's going to have a lot of ice on it. <clears throat> uh, when you get to it, you're going to look down that thing going like, holy shit, I'm not going there. And I once spent a couple of hours chopping steps all the way down that thing and got to the realization that 
unless you're a pro and really can control where your balance is going, where your head's at, even if you have places to put your feet, you're not going to be, you're not going to make it. And the run out's terrible. It's all the way down into the, this big boulder field. So a shepherd pass is out. Do not think about shepherd pass. Um, south, south of shepherd then would be um, a trail crest. Trail crest, you think, yeah, man, this is, this is, you know, highly used summer trail, but now it's ice and snow. Yes, you can go up from the west side to the summit of Whitney. Um, it's more convex. It's, it's not as vertical as the east side. Remember, the Sierras were originally flat, and then due to tectonic plate activity and earthquakes and volcanic crap and all that sort of stuff way back when, the whole thing tilted up. That's why the eastern side is near vertical. Western side has a nice slope to it. So when you get up to Trail Crest, you look over the edge and you drop down 8,000 feet to you know, your vision drops down 8,000 feet to, uh, to the, the valley, and you look at all those switchbacks, and you go like, ah, and people who have tried to glissade it, many have died, so it's not the way to go out if there's a lot of snow. South of that, the only way out is Cottonwood Pass for the month of May and June, depending upon the winter. If it's a light winter, uh, maybe shepherd but it'd have to be a really warm warm spring but uh, cottonwood pass horseshoe meadows is the way out you get to forester and you go holy crap i'm not doing this and many people do and turn around you got to make a couple day trip back to to cottonwood and then go out through horseshoe meadows the caveat being the road may not be open they try and get the road from lone pine to horseshoe meadows open by memorial day for the fishermen and if it's a normal to heavy winter preceding, that road may not be open. If it is not open, you're going to have one badass foot stomping asphalt walk for 20 plus miles to get out of there. It is not good. Your feet will be dead. They will tell you to go to go to hell. <laughs> you know, it is not pleasant. So you want to know when that road opens. So maybe before you leave Kennedy Meadows South as a northbound PCT through hiker, find out if Horseshoe Meadows Road is open yet, because that's your really only bail, unless you go west, and west is a long way up. Great, great info. Okay, thank you, Ned. Um, let's open up the floor. I might have missed a couple questions, so if I have, please um, use the reactions, if you can see that below. Raise your hand, and then um, if you have a question, raise it, and we'll um, make sure to answer your question. So does anybody have questions for Ned? I see a couple in the in the chat. Okay. Oh, yeah, there's some good ones in the chat. You want me just to go down that or? Yeah, if we have it covered, let's do that. And then it looks like Mac has a question too. Yeah, do you love snow? Just a little. <laughs> hey, hey, think about this. You know why snow is so cool? Snow is cool because one, there's no bugs. There's no bears. There's no people. There's no rangers. And as long as you're savvy about avalanche safety and creek crossings and how to move around and not get lost, it's a wide open wilderness. It's really great. And it's quiet. It's beautiful. You know, adding all that white with the green and the blue and the gray, great for pictures. So, you know what? It's spring snow hiking is really great. But anyway, I just saw the question. There was another question there about dwelling a bit about um, uh, early season Sierra weather. If you are the one making the boot track. Okay. Um, if you go in early in May, you'll probably be the one making the boot track. You will have pristine snow in front of you. 
the next week you may have footprints. Other people have come in now. It's the first week of May, after the first week of May. And you have foot tracks going this way, foot tracks going that way, foot tracks going all over because nobody knows where the hell they are. So you really can't count on following somebody else's boot track. Hey, look, they went that way. Let's go that way. That doesn't always work. You're going to end up getting lost right along with them. So therefore, have your have your inreach, have your trail, your topo maps, know how to read your map. Um, weather, the weather in April, like we were saying, um, brings in a lot of big storms. So you're going to have greater dumpage in April and March than you will in May and June. Nevertheless, because you are a, a, a mountain chain, you're in a mountain chain that's very close to a big ocean body of water, you get a lot of humidity. And that humidity rises driven by the heat coming out of the Central Valley in California. That heat drives the moisture, sucks it up from the, from the Pacific Ocean and rises, raises it up to above the Sierra where it gets cold enough to then precipitate. So you can have three foot, two foot snowstorms in June and July in the Sierra. They're less frequent, they're less likely, nevertheless they happen. Um, I've, I've known many stories over the years where uh, ultralight through hikers have gotten stuck in various places in the Sierra and regretted the hell out of it and damn near froze to death. So it happens. You're, you're in mountains. They make their own weather. So um, that talks a little bit about weather. Um, let me see. I can move on to another one. Unless somebody wants to open their mic and ask a question. Is that how you want to do it, Carol? Um, yeah, I think that works well. So it looks like Mac had a question. I don't know if you want to unmute yourself or I did see you put it in the chat. So yeah, my question is in the chat. Um, what are the best weather resources and websites to be checking for the thaw uh, before entering the Sierras? There are a number. Um, I'm not the pro on on all of them. Uh, I probably have to defer to to uh, PCTA, uh, some of the online communities. I mean, I, I use, shit, I'm like Tonto. You know, I, I lick my finger and raise it up to figure out what the weather's gonna do. Um, online, I don't trust online. And you can be in the mountains or you can even be in Kennedy Meadows and, and you're gonna get a million different ideas on what the weather's going to do. I mean, it's weather. You don't count on it, you plan on it being like crap and, and then enjoying the best you get. So, um, what counts, though, is your four to six weeks before you get this year. That's when you want to be watching the weather forecast. You want to be hearing how much snow did fall, how much snow has never fallen. I mean, it's like it's a drought winter um, because you want to get a clue in your head before you get into a, at snow elevation. You're going to first probably run into snow somewhere around Alancha Peak. When you get up to about 9000 feet in early May, you may hit snow line depending upon the winter, of course. So if you're hearing as you're coming across Mojave, as you're coming across SoCal, uh, you know, um, going around LA, you know, if you hear of several snowstorms, then think, oh yeah, crap, the snow line, the snow line, which is the, the lowest elevation where you first run into snow is going to be low. If you're not hearing about any storms, then the snow line is gonna be higher. Did that answer the question, Mac? Yeah, pretty much, thank you. Yeah, I'll dance around. So yeah, uh, you may ask a straightforward question. You may get some wild ass answers. So you gotta, you gotta tell me if you don't get it. There's one uh, in the chat that um, is is a good one. So how do you recommend crossing sun cups? 
Oh, goody. Recommendations about like post-holing, that sort of thing. Yeah, avoid it. Go during the secret season. Hello. So your first line of defense against any of the problems out there are to avoid them. Just like a creek crossing. If the one you see in front of you reminds you of the Lord of the Rings, get the hell out of there and, and go find a meadow where it's mellow. Avoid the bad stuff. The bad stuff in snow is avalanches, of course. Um, avalanches don't happen when the snow consolidates until the snow gets so wet during the thaw that it, it you don't get these monster uh, nasty airborne avalanches that like wipe out buildings anymore. You get these little soupy sloughs that that move a short distance and then and then re resettle. Uh, yeah, they can move you and carry you and they just kind of like are a surprise, but it doesn't usually kill you. Um, but uh, early season, yeah, avalanches. So avoid avoid April. Um, uh, how do you how do you? I lost my question. <laughs> what was the question again? Well, it was specifically like, if you have no other choice, you're caught in the thaw, whatever, how do you recommend yeah. kind of going, navigating snow? Um, okay, so that takes, us, that takes us back, uh, Carol and everybody who's asking, takes us back to walking at night. So you, you're, in, you're in the middle of the year and you find out the temperatures are rising or they've been rising and now you're starting to post hole and you start post holing earlier and earlier and earlier in the day. Um, you can end up walking at night. So that, that helps. If you can get one mile an hour, you're doing great. The way to do that, and there's a strategy behind all of that because you wanna do one pass a day. And um, you gotta get over that pass before nine in the morning, say, because you know you're gonna be post-holing at 10. You wanna have a glissade down the north side that when you sit down in the snow to glissade, you don't sit down in four feet of snow with your feet in the air. You know, it can be that the snow can be so soft that you you go like, I'm not glissading. I don't care how steep it is. I just feel like a cannonball that just landed in, in a haystack. You know, my feet are in the air. So um, you avoid some of the, the thaw issues by walking at night. Unfortunately, you then come into uh, some navigation problems. But uh, otherwise, then in the thaw, you have these surface conditions called sun cups. And sun cups look like you're walking on a honeycomb. And the sun cup itself can range, uh, when it first starts forming, it's only about the size of a half of a cantaloupe. You know, there are these little divots in the snow. And sometimes they'll have a little mold buildup or uh, bacterial whatever, and it looks a little red. Don't worry about any of that junk. But as these circles end up connecting, and you've got circles and little pockets of depressions all over the snow, if it's soft snow, you can kick through the rims, the, the ridges of each, each um, sun cup. But once it's hard, or if it's hard, you're actually walking on the edge of each sun cup as you work your way across that area. Sun cups can be more predominant out in the open where the sun and radiation are really softening the snow and also really warming the debris that's on the snow. You'll find a sun cup will form because this little tiny pine needle sitting on the snow, got warmer and warmer and warmer and melted down into the snow and it makes this big cup or a pine cone or a tree branch or it happens just by itself. And you have these sun cups that can be as deep as garbage cans. So they can be outrageous. And if they're that deep, you don't wanna step in them because you're, you know, hell you're mid thigh deep and you're struggling to get out of them. You, you slide down into them and you can post hole from the bottom of them. So if they're deep enough already and then you post hole, now you're like 
a little apution trying to find your way around the, you know, the land of the giants. It's like, it can be bad. But when it's that bad, oftentimes, because this happens during the thaw, there will be dry ground somewhere nearby. Again, there's no law that says you can't walk in the Sierra or any mountain range in the summer outside the trail. You can go across country. You can do your own routes. That's your freedom. The, the, where, we, where we get upset with people is when they're cutting switchbacks. We want to keep them on the trail bed that's designed to take the abuse. And when you cross cut your switchbacks, you create an erosion channel. And that's not good because then it gets further, the, the ecosystem, the land, the, the soil and so forth gets further damaged. So, but if you say, ah, screw this sun cup stuff, I want to get out of here. And you see dirt over there, go walk over there. Just know where you are relative to the trail. So you've got sun cups, um, you've got post holing. If once you start post holing, forget it. The only solution maybe is to walk on colder snow. Where are the sun cups the worst? Out in the sun. Where do you see less sun cups? In the shade. Do you, can you say, um, you look around, you're frustrated, you're exhausted, your knees are killing you because they've been jarred for the last hour, banging down in these sun cups. And you go, you look up and like, uh, anyway, and you go, well, where else can I walk? And you look over and you see trees over there. Who says you can't walk over there? You're on snow, you're not damaging the soil, not damaging the ecosystem. Go over there, the snow is colder because it's in the shade. Also, if it's on a north slope, north slope faces away from the sun. So you'll, you'll, you'll post hole less on north slopes than you will on, say, for example, western slopes. So the western slope gets the hot afternoon sun. So that sucker and the southern slopes are going to melt out fast and they're going to develop huge uh, post hole routes and sun cups. Whereas the eastern and northern, cooler, morning sun's cooler, northern doesn't even face the sun, you're going to make some distance on those slopes, you can have a better footing to stand on and walk on. So if you're tired of post holing, but you still gotta do some miles, which is a joke anyway, really limit yourself to eight to 14 miles a day on snow, depending upon snow line. If, if your snow line's low at 9,500 feet, you've got miles to go before you get to a 12,000 foot pass. So you're gonna be humping it, going slow. You don't wanna be in there uh, with those low snow lines during the thaw, it's just going to be a wallow fest. You know, if you know anything about Muir Pass, it's, it doesn't drop off. The, the trail doesn't lower in elevation very quickly. So you're humping it on snow for six, seven, eight miles, you know, and wishing you were down below snow lines so you could find some dry trail and, and stretch out. Remember, you're not walking normally. You've got to walk more flat footed and more guarded. Your, your inner thigh muscles, your adductors, when you bring your legs together, you're adding them together. So those are your adductor muscles. They get a hell of a workout walking on snow. You will get stronger and it won't be a problem. But don't be surprised if you have cramping and, and um, other fatigue related like loss of salt, bring your uh, electrolytes. Big deal. Very, very big deal. Stock up on your electrolytes um, when you first hit snow because you'll want them during the day, all day. You're sweating like a pig and all that salt's going out. So your muscles are gonna have a tough time. Anyway, I digress a little bit. Okay, I don't see any hands raised, but there is a question in the chat and it's kind of specific. So starting northbound from Cottonwood Pass on July 9th, on average snow year, do you recommend carrying um, an ice axe, whip it or both for July 9th 
time frame? It's a simple, simple answer. Do you know when you're going to fall down? No. Does it take much for you to get uh, lose your footing? No. Here's the classic scenario. You're on dry trail. The, the trail just, oh, well, let's just pick on Apache Peak down in the south, actually down where I am. I'm, I'm in Southern California right now. So you just come from, where the wood? What's the highway? Palm, Palm to Pines Highway, uh, uh, Paradise Valley Cafe. You just crossed the highway. Now you're going up on Desert Divide, going up to San Jacinto. Apache Peak is along this ridge. This ridge runs north-south. Whenever you're on an eastern aspect of that ridge, the sun hasn't warmed the snow that much. So there's going to be more snow on the eastern and northern sides of everything than on the southern and western sides. So as you go up, as you find yourself going across a northern exposure, you're going to have a lot more snow. Maybe not a boot track to walk in. Maybe you're an early season hiker leaving March, mid-March, maybe even April 1st. So there's not a lot of footprints to walk in. Maybe a storm actually rolled through a week before, filled in all those snow prints, and you don't have anything flat to walk in. So now you're walking across the slope at an angle do you know that whether your shoes are gonna get a bite? Maybe you've been in trail runners in the desert, but now you're up on a mountain. You have soft soled shoes that don't have an edge. Micro spikes aren't gonna do it when you're on, a, on, a, on an incline. They'll be fine if the trail's flat, but not slope, not slanted. So when are you gonna fall? You don't know when you're gonna fall. So a whippet is in your hand always. You are not an idiot. You're not a fool for having one. Oh my God, they're heavier than a regular pole. What am I going to do? People are going to laugh at me. Screw them. This is for your safety. I don't mean to be blunt, but do you know when you're going to fall? So that back to that classic scenario. Now you're on a summer trail. You're on a northern aspect, but there's this little draft, a little finger of snow that's covering the trail. You're in some little slot, like maybe a creek. And you see, oh God, I got to have to climb up on this snow bank and then go across it and down and land on the dry trail coming out the other side of it. I have seen more people fall thinking that they can just run over these things and then they end up sliding all the way down to the end of the snow and banging into the rocks at the bottom. Don't need an ISEX. You need to maintain your balance to prevent the fall. You do that with two poles. You do that with shoes that are appropriate for edging into snow. If you have the right shoes, you have the right balance, the chances of your falling are slim. It can happen. Have a traction device to increase your traction and your grip onto the snow. If you have the wrong one or your teeth are too short, um, yeah, at least you got something. But remember that soft, wet snow will stick to the metal of the crampon and it'll, <laughs> it, it, it adds up to like a, a half of a cantaloupe under your foot. Your feet get heavier and heavier and heavier to lift up off the snow. And you look and you go, holy crap, what is that? And you've got this ball hanging off of your feet. You've got to use your pick or kick your shoe into something and knock the snow off. And sometimes that becomes every three or four steps. So um, it's not the best, but that's only on, under certain circumstances. If you're on really cold snow, that doesn't happen. So once again, early season travel is advantageous. But I would take a whippet and not an axe for a, for a hiker. You're not a climber. You're not going to be using them as, as anchors. You're not going to be uh, uh, chopping into waterfalls and stuff like that. Yeah, it's the definitive tool. 
And it's great for uh, using to dig out your uh, tent uh, stakes that are now frozen in the snow in the morning. But, you know, the pick on your, on your whippet will do the same thing. Just dig away. You'll get your, your, your tent peg out. But um, take a whippet. It's designed for somebody who's not trained in climbing skills. And it's there for you when it's, um, you're tumbling and your feet are up in the air and your head's down and you don't know where you're at. Just go to the pick. Get your body weight on top of this thing, and you'll come to a stop. Okay, great. Thanks for the recommendation. It looks like Gary, you have a question. I'm not sure if I totally understand it. Yeah. So, would you mind muting yeah. and? Okay, great. Yeah. So I'm just like, if I don't do the right thing and go in during the you know the secret season and I screw up and get in later, um, the I'm just I'm trying to do the logistics of how much food I carry to sort of go from Kennedy Meadows to Muir Trail Ranch. How much extra time, you know, I did, that's a long haul, right? Kind of, uh, and with, if it's really shitty, it could be really bad. Um, yeah, yeah, I get what you're, where you're coming from. Um, if, you, if you go up, if your entry date is post-thaw, mm -hmm. so anytime after the last week of May or the first of June, mm -hmm. um, you're gonna be anticipating soft snow, uh, short days, um, but it really, really depends. There's a lot to it because yeah. at, the longer you wait to enter the Sierra, the higher will be the snow lines. So the less distance that you're actually, the less number of miles you'll actually be on snow, even mm -hmm. if the snow is crap. Mm -hmm. So it's a trade-off. If you can knock off your, your snow miles in the early morning, in other words, camp on the edge of the snow, uh, at snow line on one side of the pass, Beat it up over the pass in the early morning hours, say be on the pass at sunrise or just after. Glacé down the backside, back onto dry trail. Mm -hmm. You should be able to do, um, you know, 14, 15 miles or okay. so a day. But then you're also going to now be dealing with multiple creek crossings during the day. Mm -hmm. You're below snow line. You've managed that one. You're safe. You've got the talent and skills to do it, the gear, foresight, wisdom. You can identify risk, all that good stuff. But now, because of the thaw, every one of those little tributaries feeding into the main creek that you're following, say you're going down, uh, well, not Bubs Creek, that wouldn't be a good one, but, you know, Paradise Creek or Palisade or, or, or um, Woods Creek or whatever, going up Woods Creek, um, all those little tributaries are nasty or can be nasty crossings, and they're going to delay you. So you may not be able to get, even though you're on dry trail, you may not be able to get the mileage you want. So gear back, you know, leave Kennedy Meadows South and maybe resupply uh, at Kearsarge and then go out Kearsarge and resupply at Bishop or a Bishop Pass or go out uh, VVR or uh, MTR. You know, uh, you can do that, but you might want to put in Kearsarge uh, in the middle. Okay. I mean, when I go in with my students, and we're in, in in May, we will do a 10-day stretch from Kennedy Meadows South to Kearsarge, another 10-day stretch from Kearsarge to Bishop Pass, another 10-day from Bishop to Mono, and we'll do it that way because you don't want to be pushing for miles. One, because it's too beautiful to be blowing through, struggling to, to get somewhere, and then two, to be doing it at night when you can't see how beautiful it is anyway. So, Dial back the, 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 the drive. You don't want to be doing your 20s anymore. You can do your 20s and 30s up in Oregon or, or Washington. 
Northern California, you drop an elevation. Doesn't necessarily mean that you won't have snow June 1st, the month of June in Northern California, because you may, but it'll be less of it. So you'll be able to do a little bit more higher mileage days okay. if you want to do that. Thank you. You totally blew up the resupply plan and I'll have to start over. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We have um, maybe five more minutes for any other questions. I don't have anything else in the chat. If I've missed anything, just feel free to unmute yourself and chime in. Anybody? I'm just reading the chat. Okay. Yeah. Make sure I didn't miss something here. Uh, we covered the Whippet versus ISAX. We covered the resupply. Um, I don't go in the Sierra without hiking crampons because remember the premise is you got to have a boot track to use something lesser, um, like, like a chain design. I don't talk about brands. I talk about design. It's the chain design held on by the rubber band that, that falls right off your, you know, it doesn't fall off your foot. Your foot blows out the side of it when your foot is on an incline. If you've got a flat track, you're golden. But if say you, uh, the, the conditions are nasty at 3 a.m., you're getting up to go to the bathroom and all around you is a slope. Are you gonna feel comfortable paddling around out there on whatever you've got for footwear? Um, when, when nothing has a sharp edge to maintain a bite into, into the hillside. So I always take uh, the hiking crampons. Um, I happen to like Cthulhu's KTS. They have a lighter version called a K10, um, more for a flexible shoe. But if you're in there with a flexible shoe, it probably also has a soft edge. So it's not advantageous uh, on a slope. You've got to have a boot track. If you're in there in the thaw, you're going to have a boot track. So, and you're, and you're following the PCT. The only problem will be is that the, the people that made the boot track are probably adhering uh, religiously to where the trail is. And they will be dealing with all those switchbacks. Whereas if you were savvy, just blow right around them and keep going. But to do that, you no longer have your boot track. So you need more of a crampon, if that makes sense. I got a question. Yeah. I'm kind of an anomaly. I'm going uh, southbound on the John Muir Trail starting July 7th, but I'm starting from uh, Mono Parker Pass. Yeah. Um, the, only, the only part I'm really concerned about is the long traverse going up Parker. There's a lot of people going ahead of me. I, I'm assuming I'll have a boot track. Um, I've never worn crampons, and so that's probably a really bad idea. Okay, Ken, Ken, my question is, and remind me, uh, refresh my memory, what aspect is, is the traverse on? Is that a northern aspect? What faces? What faces? Uh, northwest, but it, it's traditionally it does hold snow. Well, so. right. Um, Although I thought uh, there's been some times when that side's been dry, and then the south side of it has been full of snow. I think, Ken, you can just keep it simple. I would take micro spikes. Um, you're going to have a boot track. Uh, it's July 7th or later, unless we have a very heavy winter, and we still could. We've had miracle marches before. Um, I think that you'll be fine. I, I would, if, if it were me, I would make sure that I, was, uh, I had a chain design and uh, a shoe that's still, well, no, you could have a shoe that has a, a soft sole. Did you have a boot track? 
Yeah, I, wear, I, I do wear boots. They they aren't really heavy boots, but um, yeah, I like a solid sole just for that reason. Right, um, right. Yeah, I would I would just take your chains, take two poles, take a whippet. You never know where you when you're gonna fall. I've always I've always got this thing. The only time I won't have this thing is maybe uh, when I know that there isn't a chance that I'm gonna have a little bit of snow crossing the trail on a steep slope. If I anticipate that, because some of my trail is across a northern steep northern slopes northern aspect slopes then i don't i don't need this so i want to be one of the rare times but then i'm not a summer hiker i don't i don't care much for the bugs and the dirt and the dust and the bears and the rangers and the crowds so i'm the guy who's always in there on snow having a ball going wherever i want to go yeah i'm allergic to cold so <laughs> perfect <laughs> especially yeah. now i lost 30 pounds in the last two years congratulations so, uh, well i don't know man my body does not retain heat any longer at all so <laughs> Well, you know, unfortunately, that comes with age. I'm in the same bracket, but, you know, that's okay. I'm just staring at the uh, the chat here, making sure we get all the questions answered. Thank are you. you. Are you good, Ken? I'm good. All right. Do you have recommended post tolling? We cost recovered that. Resources, websites, check, entering. Uh, no. Um, you know what? Um, just, you know, if I was a northbound through... Now, uh, your forerunners do like to now share back. They, they bail off the trail via Kearsarge, get down to, to um, the Dow Villa in Lone Pine, get online and show pictures and talk about how gnarly it was up there. Um, I probably just follow you know, the current class page on Facebook to see um, what people are saying. And also in the same vein, if you run into anybody southbound, Make sure you utilize their knowledge and ask them, how are the creek crossings up ahead? Because you're going north, they're going south. They've already dealt with that. So the same idea is going to Facebook to look for advice about the, the terrain ahead. Um, talk to people going the opposite direction and make sure you ask them, what did they use? What did they see? How, were the, how was the snow? It doesn't take more than an inch of snow, guys, to lose your, to lose your balance and your slip. And in, all it takes really is an icy rock. So be very careful. The snow, when it melts in the thaw, very in, the, in the very beginning of the thaw, the water, where's it go? Well, yeah, it goes in the ground, but it also loves to run down the trail. So your trail turns into a creek in itself. What is, happens at night is it freezes. So you can have a, nothing but a, you can have a dry trail, but it's full of ice in the morning. So you may start out with your micro spikes just because, or if you're really smart, screw the trail. The water's in the trail, just walk somewhere else. You know, you have that technology, you have that ability. Um, so All right. last any last words, Ned? Unfortunately, um, we're out of time, but anything you'd like to close with? Uh, wow. Um, always, oh, if you're gonna be going in in the month of May, have a shoe with an edge. Take your hiking crampons, take a whippet. The only time I carry a whippet and an ax is if I'm chopping the, the trail across Forester's chute. You use the ads for that. And I'll, I used to do that every year for the hikers. I go up there and cut a path along, what was that, 80, 80 feet long and, and 45 degrees steep. And so I would do that. But that's the only time I would carry uh, an ax because the whippet works fine and it's in my hand all the time. So I would encourage you guys to think along those lines. It's very practical. You don't have to have a lot of training to know how to use it. Um, try and take a class somewhere. Um, I've got a video. Uh, Mountain Education has a YouTube channel 
where we have some videos, but unfortunately, a lot of us are technologically challenged as well. And um, although the YouTube videos are, are raw and unpolished and maybe unprofessional, but they, they, they teach as well as we can get the information out there. So check those out. Uh, what I'm doing with Carol is, is working out great. Um, I may not be able to teach uh, uh, this year depends. Uh, I work for FEMA and so I'm stationed, uh, deployed in Southern California and I may not be able to have access to snow to teach down here um, this winter. So we're going to try, which Carol, with her help, um, to at least get the information to you verbally. And if I can uh, show some videos, and I'm glad you guys thought that that one helped. Um, uh, uh, we'll try and get the reality of the trail to you that way. Great. Thank you so much, Ned, for your time. Thank you so much for coming and have a great day, you guys. Thanks for showing up. Well, that's a wrap for this session. I know when I was a new hiker, I would have gotten so much value out of this. And if you feel the same way, consider thanking Ned for his time by donating to Mountain Education. The link is in the show notes for that. And like I was saying at the beginning of this episode, we will be uploading the video via YouTube. Um, and we have our own YouTube channel. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. So in about a week, that will be up. But make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so you get the latest on all of our uploads. And if you would like to get involved with our community at Thruer, the website is www.thruer.com. That's www.thru-r.com. And on there, we have links to our social media. We have helpful resources on there, um, registration for our meetups, and more. And once again, thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, happy hiking.